Hello, my name is Eric Dellinger, and welcome to the first episode of Scary Stuff. This is a new podcast focusing on horror movies brought to you by Jacob Jones Goldstein and Nick Leamy, founding members of Oddity Prodigy Productions and co-editors of the Scary Stuff Anthology, which will be on sale soon. This first episode was recorded a little over a month ago with a single microphone setup, so bear with us a little bit on the audio. The sound improves quite a bit beginning with episode 2. But there's still a lot of fun to be had in this first episode as the three of us discuss all five movies in the Return of the Living Dead franchise. With that being said, I will send things over to Jacob to kick off the first episode of Scary Stuff. Jacob. I'm here with Nick Leamy. How you doing? And Eric Dellinger. Hello, hello. We decided when we did the horror episodes of Oddity Prodigy a few weeks ago, we really enjoyed it. We had a lot we wanted to say, and we thought it might be fun to do a series of podcasts that had a more focused topic than what we've been doing. You know, kind of a smaller group. It's also really good for the fact that we just have too much content to talk about. We were going to go on for an extra hour on that one if we let ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't listened to it already, the third episode of the main Oddity Podigy show is called Scary Stuff, and you can kind of think of that as the pilot episode before we got ordered a series, um, <laughs> because it featured Jacob and Nick doing extensive horror talk, and also Shasta and Steve. Shasta is now committed to another project, and Steve wanted too much money, so I'm the, <laughs> you just think of me as the non-union Steve who broke the picket lines. and uh, You scab. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, we love horror movies. We talk about them normally, and, you know, we're three Caucasian males in our 30s and 40s, which means just podcasts happen. That's how I was, was going to introduce myself, is you had a dearth of nerdy white people on this show, and I'm here to fill that void. <laughs> well, yeah, so let's let's just introduce ourselves a little bit. Like I said, my name is Jacob. I'm one of the members of Oddity Prodigy. I'm a writer. Normally, I do horror writing, and I love horror movies. I didn't when I was younger, so I guess I'm the person who came to it late, if you listen to that previous podcast. I spent the entire time talking about how I didn't watch any movies in the 80s because they scared me. And oddly enough, one of the topics we're talking about tonight is one of those movies that got under my skin. Over the years, I've gotten back into it, and we spend a lot of time watching horror movies together. So we figured, well, let's do this podcast. So next up, we have Eric. Who's nobody special. So uh, yeah, I'm not a member of uh, Oddity Prodigy uh, proper. I'm not a founding member. Kind of similar to what Jacob said, which is I wasn't actually a huge horror person growing up. I was such an easily terrified youth. The earliest terrifying memory I have, you guys got into this a little bit on episode three of the main show, which I missed. But my first memory of being terrified as a kid was a Garfield cartoon. Nice. Oh, nice. Mm. The Halloween special? Uh, no, Garfield and the Rough, 1984. <laughs> I, was I remember old. that. It's the one where they go camping. And yeah. it's the one where there's the panther on the loose. And yeah, just the bitch with that's the earliest thing I can remember is being terrified of <laughs> this panther with glowing eyes in the dark. And ever since then, one of the recurring terrors of me in movies is just eyes glowing in the dark. Huh. And I didn't realize that until I went back and rewatched Garfield in the Rough in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> like, I gotta go back to my roots for <laughs> this hard podcast. So yeah, so I, I wasn't a big hard person growing up, was easily terrified, kind of got into them a little bit more later. And part of it, I think we're all into horror for a bunch of different reasons. Part of it is, I, for me in particular, is I just kind of like a little bit of everything. 
but one thing I'm always looking for in horror films is kind of getting back to that if I can get something that legitimately creeps me out or actually finding that actual bit of horror for me again, which might not be in plentiful supply tonight, but we'll get to that. (laughs) I'm Nick Leamy, and I have always enjoyed horror. I can't even remember how far back exactly. I remember growing up with the Tales from the Dark Side show and Monsters Mm. and if it was remotely horror-themed and on TBS or TNT, I was watching it. Thank goodness. Oh, you had cable as a kid. Yes. Listen to this rich guy. <laughs> so <laughs> It was required. I'm the oldest of five. Well, I'm sorry, seven right now, five at the time. And, you know, you can't properly keep that number of children from rampaging the countryside unless you have cable and a plethora of content to feed them with. I remember growing up with Captain USA's groovy movies which definitely is some of my earliest fun experiences with horror, like Chud, Alligator. (laughs) If it was remotely cheap, I watched it at that age. (laughs) All right. So that's who we are. When we decided to do this podcast, we we kicked around a few topics. And what we decided to to open with was the classic, well, there's a loaded word in this. (laughs) Uh, The franchise Return of the Living Dead. Some of it is classic. Tonight we're talking about the Return of the Living Dead franchise, which started, I think it was 85, was 85. the first one? And it started as because of the split between the how they wanted to do sequels to the Night of the Living Dead. But they specifically, they wanted to do a zombie movie. They were inspired by Romero, but they wanted to do something, they had to do something that was different enough. Uh, yeah, so, so they so went with more a comedic bent. The story on this one is credited to three people. It's credited to John Russo, Rudy Ritchie, and Russ Steiner. So John Russo was the co-writer of the original Night of the Living Dead. So he worked on that with George Romero. Then after following Night of the Living Dead, there was a bit of a separation. There's varying degrees of exactly how amicable that was, depending on who you ask. Russo insists they were still friendly. But the big takeaway from that was following that movie, John Russo specifically retained the rights to the phrase Living Dead, which is why when Romero ended up getting back into zombie movies, all his movies were simply of the dead. So since Russo had the rights to the phrase Living Dead, in the mid-70s, he and Rudy Ritchie decided, let's try and get a sequel going on this project and do another one. So they wrote, I believe John Russo wrote a novel first under the title of Return of the Living Dead, and then they turned it into a screenplay, which I read for this podcast. So it is available on Amazon, both the novel and the screenplay. It is decidedly not good. (laughs) Does it match up to the movie that we got? No, not remotely. So there are okay. here are the things that the original script for Return of the Living Dead shares with the finished film. There are zombies. Right. There's a scene in the mortuary. <laughs> and there's a character named Burke. That is literally it. Wow. So the original script for Return of the Living Dead, it takes place 10 years after Night of the Living Dead. It opens with a character by the name of Burke. Now, in the original script, his name is... Burt Miller, whereas in the finished film, the character, it's the character played by Clue Gulliver, he's known as Burt Wilson, opens with him and his three daughters, and they're on their way to a church service, which is a funeral for the child of one of the churchgoers, and after the minister gives the eulogy, he hands the father an iron crucifix, which is spiked at the bottom, and he has the father hammer this spike into the forehead of his son, because it turns out it's this whole cult that has sprung up following Night of the Living Dead, and they believe that this is going to come again. 
and that the only way to present the zombies coming back is as soon as someone dead, you spike them in the forehead. So it has why, this why kind have of, a graveyard full of just waiting corpses for the turn? Just it, yep, take exactly. care of it immediately. Yep. That's uh, forward thinking. Yeah, so they've been doing this. This was kind of their big thing, I think, in, in getting... Well, this and another idea, which I'll get into in a second, were kind of, I think, the driving things for the screenplay. Which is interesting, because that wouldn't work for the movie that we got. Uh, no, not for the movie no. we got, no. That is very much the Romero zombie approach yeah. there. This is... <laughs> Return of the Living Dead went in a very different direction. Yeah. Yeah, until it kind of cycles back at the end, but in a very depressing way. But we'll yes, get back yes. There. So they, it opens with this kind of jarring opening sequence. Then after that, a churchgoer comes in and announces that a bus full of people have flipped over. And the churchgoers are excited because it's a spiking buffet. So they descend on the people of this bus, and they're just spiking people in this who <laughs> are in this oh bus gosh. accident. Uh, the police show up. It's actually the sheriff from the first Night of the Living Dead is supposed to be the character. And it's this rather amusing, in a bad way, sequence of basically the cops showing these people away from a bus accident going like, go on, get! And trying to stop them from spiking people in the forehead. <laughs> and the cultists literally escaped to the woods. It's like, all right, we got ten of them, so, so we're doing all right. You know, it's, so, so, the, so that's the opening of it. And then, as you might expect, the dead come again. The kickoff for it is the sheriff's deputy dies, and he comes back in the mortuary, which is kind of where they got that setting for the finished film. And then from there, the perspective just kind of rolls from person to person to person. It's kind of this floating POV in the movie. It's also terrible. Um, <laughs> the, the shortest and most condensed way of describing the script would, it would be Night of the Living Dead meets Last House on the Left. Oh, so oh. The, the other driving thing, aside from the image of the spiking that they have in this one, is the idea that if this were to happen again, people would be the far bigger problem. Very and, common theme with Romero stuff there. Yeah, and a very big thing in 70s horror, too. Mm -hmm. Last House on the Left was also in that time frame. They do it in the clunkiest way possible. It's one of the, you know, we're going to show you how bad people can be. The, the dialogue is very rudimentary, my first screenplay stuff. But it is not actually their first screenplay, because the other thing I watched in preparation for this podcast, because I did way too much research, is while George Romero was working on his movie Martin and preparing to do Dawn of the Dead, these same people, Rudy Ritchie and John Russo, were making The Booby Hatch, which is a 1977 sex comedy billed as the ultimate in sexual fulfillment. I also watched this because I am stupid. <laughs> was it indeed the ultimate in sexual fulfillment? Quite the opposite. Uh, it's also terrible. Um, and better than the screenplay for the original Return of the Living Dead, I would say, but that's, that's not a high compliment. Please don't seek this movie out. You can get it. Uh, it's not available for streaming, but you can get the DVD from Netflix. If you do get the DVD from Netflix, please snap it in half before you make it. <laughs> this is not my way to kind of crap on the creators, but just to say that the, the folks who were making Return of the Living Dead don't exactly have the best pedigree. If you look at John Russo's filmography in particular, he did lots of other movies, and it tends to be very, I don't even want to say shock-laden, but very, you know, scream queeny. Very. Uh, let's put it this way. He did a movie called Santa Claus, C-L-A-W-S you know, 1992, stuff like that. So they were trying to get this original Return of the Living Dead. I feel like I've seen part of that. Oh, if you have, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't go, I didn't watch that one because it postdates Return of the Living Dead, but I saw clips from it. So if you saw it, I'm sorry. No, oh, I remember some, some Christmas horror movie that I thought was the, what was the famous one with the... Silent Night, Deadly Night? Silent, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Night. The one that got banned and all that. And I remember thinking it was that and then realizing it wasn't. And... 
I remember being I remember being amused by the name. Yeah, that might have been it. I might have seen part of that. They have someone come people with a trowel. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah. I didn't see a lot of it, but I distinctly remember because I was always fascinated by Silent Night, Deadly Night. Because same, my parents were obsessed. Well, not my parents. My mom was obsessed with its existence. Like it just made her angry. Because she was seeing Christmas <laughs> and making it scary. Yeah, which is right. which is to her mind like the worst thing you can do. And I remember <laughs> it got banned when I was a kid. And I just remember because I, I you know grew up in the church just, and a lot of church folks complaining about it. I just always remember going to the VHS store and just seeing that the, the box up on the wall for that like one arm with the axe. Yeah, with the axe and the chimney. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I swear that the majority of my love and appreciation for horror films just comes from wanting to know what movies existed behind those VHS boxes. <laughs> We should probably have done Christmas movies for this podcast because it would have saved us a lot of pain. <laughs> well, potentially. We should do Silent Night Deadly Night series after this one. Or we could just go see Black Christmas. Oh, God, no. Yeah. No, no. I am not excited about the new release of Black Christmas. Because it's racist? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Loving the original, what they've done to the, the series just disheartens me on multiple levels. Speaking of disheartening series, anyway, you were... <laughs> so, yeah, so... All that preamble about me telling folks what not to seek out online. What, please don't buy the script, the novel, or rent the movies I just talked about. Um, <laughs> but all that was to say, so that John Russo had been actively working on doing a sequel to Night of the Living Dead since about 77. At some point in the 80s, they got Toby Hooper involved. Um, director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, and Poltergeist. Did, and Poltergeist, yep. He was fresh off Poltergeist at this point, because that's how we got James Carron in this movie. But so he didn't direct this. He didn't. Toby Hooper was brought on board. They gave him the script, and he said, this is kind of terrible. Can I bring on someone else to rewrite it? And that's how they brought in Dan O'Bannon. Yay, so Dan O'Bannon. Yep. So they brought in Dan O'Bannon to do rewrites, and Dan O'Bannon, as I mentioned, basically threw everything out. He's also the man who brought us Alien and Total Recall. He is. He's, 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 you should definitely check out some Dan O'Bannon movies. They'll make you very happy. And Toby Hooper. So the rewrites on Return of the Living Dead were going so long that Toby Hooper couldn't stick around. So he ended up going off to do Life Force instead. Which Dan O'Bannon also wrote. That's right. So, yeah, so Dan O'Bannon all over the mid-80s, kind of horror here. So, at some point, Dan O'Bannon pitched the idea of directing this himself, and they gave him the opportunity. Well, see, now I'm imagining if they had switched more things, like Patrick Stewart was in Return of the Living Dead. That's <laughs> <laughs> the little part that nobody wanted. <laughs> oh, that'd been fantastic. <laughs> Rabid weasels. <laughs> I have some questions about that part. Yeah, it was a... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so Dan O'Bannon threw most of it out. They gave him the chance to direct, and that's how we arrived at the film we've got. I also read, and this is not actually going to go into this in detail yet, but I actually found a copy of the Dan O'Bannon script for this. And there are some differences, which we'll get to after we've gone through the film. So, yeah, so I, I did way too much for this. No, I did not get a hold of the script for Return of the Living Dead, Necropolis, or Rave to the Grave, but I tried. I don't believe that there were scripts. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Shooting in the hip. <laughs> so so the first Return of the Living Dead, I had seen before. It's the only one of these I'd seen before. Yeah, I was going to say that this is like one of my favorite classic movies from growing up. I, I, yeah. I love this movie. So that's something I, I wanted to ask early. So did you grow up on this? Absolutely. But mind you, I grew up on it on the like TBS or TNT version. So okay. it, was, it was edited for content and uh -huh. for commercials. Okay. So it was plenty gooey and plenty violent, but you do lose a little bit of the thread of the storyline, uh, unfortunately. But So coming back and rewatching it uncut was fantastic. And Jake, you grew up on it too? Well, sort of. I saw it in middle school. It was the first zombie movie I ever saw. 
And it scared the crap out of me because for the longest time, really from Scooby-Doo until I watched Shaun of the Dead, zombie movies I just avoided completely. They mm. scared me. I didn't like concepts. They bothered me. And this was the only one I actually sat down and watched. I sat down and watched it with my brother and a couple of my friends, Jamie and Kim, because they liked horror movies. Uh, they were also how I saw Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. And I didn't want to watch it. Because I knew it was going to scare me. Uh, but I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't, you know, this is middle school. You can't do that. So we watched it. And it scared me. And a lot of it had always stayed with me. Mm -hmm. Like, growing up. Like, it, it had, like, visually a lot of the stuff that I... I wouldn't say I had nightmares from it. I don't really remember any nightmares. I think the only movies that ever actually gave me nightmares were Jaws and... Uh, Garfield. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean, technically, Scooby-Doo, Jaws... Not even Jaws, but Jaws 2... Because I didn't see Jaws until much later. And The Day After Tomorrow, which was the, the 80s TV miniseries about nuclear war. Oh, Because oh, I, I grew up in the, I grew up in the Cold War. But anyway, I saw this and, you know, it scared me. And periodically I would, you know, remember it here or there. But I remember some of the visuals were what really got to me. But the main thing that got to me was the end. The very last shot of yes. him slapped opening the thing and them being in there because I remember... Oh, yeah, it was chilling. It, it And it, when I saw it again, most of the movie, well, it did not scare me. But that end still sent a chill down my spine. It's, yep. it's a very oh, scary yeah. ending. And it's yeah. partly because it's that idea of, like, helplessness and trapped and, and there's nothing that can hopelessness yeah. and just being stuck. And I, and I was surprised after having watched that movie that the end still triggered that in me. I think it's also important to note that I felt they did an incredible job with the music and sound for the film. Yes. I thought it really drove home every aspect of it from beginning to end. Like that scene you talk about there, he bursts into the, the attic section and he says, I'm here. And he gets Tina. a kind of, Tina. And he gets like the kind of echo. Yeah. It, it, like everything goes quiet except for like his fading echo. And then there's the final ending. It's yeah. everything. And oh my gosh. And even throughout the film, the way they really punctured various points with the music. Like, mm. like when the rain starts falling and suddenly the music kicks in. And, it, and it's yep. everything was the right tone and the right beat and the right timing. And it really just drove the whole film for me. What's and, interesting about this, sorry to, to interject, that scene, when I first moved to Delaware, the first weekend we were here, my brother, his now wife, and my mom came down and we were staying in a house owned by the church the weekend to kind of get used to, you know, see the church for the first time and all that. And there was an enormous lightning storm, mm -hmm. like a terrible rainstorm. And I remember being in this house that has a front porch and a door to the porch. And, you know, we were sleeping on the floor in the house. It was unfurnished at the time. And, you know, my brother and I had got to talking about scary movies for whatever reason. And we didn't talk about this movie, but we had mentioned it briefly. Middle of that night, there was a gust of wind and that door blew open and like slammed mm -hmm. into the wall and scared the crap out of us. Mm -hmm. And I still think when I watched that end scene with him mm -hmm. bursting through, oh, oh, man. that's what was on my mind when that happened my first, you know, weekend in Delaware. Yeah, if only your brother's a teen. <laughs> but that scene kind of goes back to the reason I asked the, that question about whether or not you grew up on it, because I didn't. I didn't see this movie growing up and I was aware of it. I had seen the box art. The box art probably terrified me as a child. Mm-hmm. Most of my box. early experiences yeah. with horror movies were trying to not look at the scary box art while I was trying to look at this direct-to-video fantasy films yeah. that I wanted. You know, it's like, just I, I just want to get to Deathstalker 3. I don't want to look at the cover for Night of the Demons. But they always put them all in the same oh, spot Night of the in the VHS store. So I would always have, like, the blinders up getting to it. So I was aware of the franchise, but I, didn't, I just assumed it was another zombie franchise and didn't know much about it. And then meeting Nick, 
Every now and again during game nights, Nick would quote the, Oh, you made me hurt my hand, baby. But that's okay, because I love you, and you have to let me eat your brains. And I thought, well, i got to see this movie, because it sounds interesting, <laughs> whatever this is. Cause... So I checked it out. So I saw it, it was probably about nine, ten years ago is when I saw it for the first time. So coming at it from a little bit of an angle. But yeah, thank you, Nick, because yeah, this... Spoilers for the end of it, yeah. This this movie's terrific, and it's yeah. and it's absolutely something special. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Yes, I didn't kind of expect to because Nick picked it, and very often I don't <laughs> enjoy the movies Nick picks. Um, and I had seen it before, and I had these these weird memories. Type yeah, things. and I watched it, and you know I liked like I you know in middle school I wasn't, but now I'm very much into punk rock, and and over the years I beyond that I was you know young punk, and uh, I liked. I remember it having a punk soundtrack, and when we came back to it and watched it, I, I enjoyed the soundtrack. I didn't love it. I thought it would somehow in my head it was more big names than just like the Cramps and a couple others. But I still enjoyed it. But I liked that aspect of it because it's it's one of those things. It's and a lot of eighties movies have that where they were sort of interpreting punk culture, and very specifically British punk culture. This wasn't like West Coast Jello Biafra stuff. This was mm, no. what they imagined from. You know the sex. It pistol. was so over the top and cliche, and it's, in, in the look and feel of the characters. It's so damn dumb. Oh my god! <laughs> like I, I, I was pausing it because I wanted to see the pins and stuff on on their vests to see if it was like misfits or something. No, it was a Starfleet pin. <laughs> yeah, dude, straight up had a Starfleet. That's by far maybe my one of my few complaints with this film is that they just didn't understand <laughs> cultural attire for what they were trying to do on any level. But it was it was so decidedly eighties and the over to the topness of of how they displayed this subculture. There were other, like, 80s things that were real specific, like Acid Rain. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. you, could, you could in some ways interpret a lot of this movie as, you know, a scare about Acid Rain. Y you would be stretching, yeah. but you could kind of read it that way. Yeah, yeah. So to roll it back to the beginning, one of the things I liked about the movie is that for a zombie movie, and even for an 80s horror movie, it's paced well. Yes. It starts out kind of slow, builds up, and kind of adds elements, and I mean, it introduces characters who are Almost entirely pointless, but entertaining. But nothing heavy-handed either, though. But it also... It, it moves smooth. But it starts out saying, A, it's a true story. Which is great. And B, yeah. like one of the very that. first scenes is them just explaining Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, they flat out call it out, 100%. They say, oh, a few years ago, but they got the year wrong. Because they say it was in 68 and the movie took place in 69. Yes. Oh, they, oh wow. Yeah. And I only know that because I was but reading But they basically say, hey, you know, that Night of the Living Dead exists. It actually happened. Let me go show you something from it. That like that's the whole premise of this film. Which and I then love. they and then they go and tell you all skeletons are from India, which was actually true. true. Yep. Is it? It is. Yes. I meant to look that. I have okay. a note. I about looked that. it up. Yep. Not only okay. So yes, if you wanted skeletons with perfect teeth from India for medical research or whatnot, they came from India at the time, which, like they said, is actually kind of disturbing. Like how many people do you know with perfect teeth? Not that many. And there was a lot coming from India. Yep. And apparently, about a month or two after this film came out, uh, they, they, months, yeah. they stopped delivering, like, selling uh, skeletons. Now, yep. the people involved in the film like to take credit for that, but it, it, it is uncanny and coincidental. Did, that did, that... Ever, did you find out why? Uh, no, no one ever knew why. But yeah, Dan O'Bannon, that was a line that Dan O'Bannon just kind of tossed in the script. And was like, oh, you know, maybe there's skeleton farms or whatever. And then, yeah, he's he brings up in every interview he did since Return of the Living Dead that... Oh, yeah, they stopped doing that crap after our movie came out. So, you know, 
Who knows? I'm gonna I'm gonna have to do some research. I'm curious as to what that was. I mean, I'm sure it's nothing good. No, you know, probably linked to the the chemical disaster or something. Yeah. But it was one of those things that was in there. It was like, now hold on a second. Yeah, it made me stop, and I was like, I gotta look that up. I was like, oh crap, there's more here. That's not just a throwaway line. <laughs> but it was, it was an interesting bit of like, it just gives you. I mean, it's all explanatory, but it's it's backstory. Yeah. It's backstory to a movie that you wouldn't think needed it. No, it, but no, that's when you get. For me, good movies come with that kind of backstory. It's like they're not just writing for the punch in the face moments. They're not just trying to get from point A to point B to point C. They're actually telling a story and trying to fill in the gaps and, and make it a real world and real people involved. And they're like, I had this tidbit of information that happens to correlate here. This will fit perfectly here. I put it in. And it really fills out the world. Now, I haven't seen Night of the Living Dead in a long time. I don't, I'm not even sure I've seen it all the way through, to be honest. The zircon, zircon gas, right? That's trioxin. Right. Trioxin. Two four five trioxin. Two four five trioxin. Is that in Night of the Living Dead? Not at no. all. Okay, so that was invented. In, in Night of the Living Dead, they just start coming up out of the ground. That's what I thought. A group of people get shacked up in a house trying to defend themselves, and everything goes to hell. And there's, yeah, no, remember, there's no explanation for it. Okay, I couldn't yeah. remember if there's. I know there's there's a line about hell being full or something. But yeah, to hear John Russo tell it, it was basically George Romero had a script for a bunch of people trapped in a house and a bunch of people trying to get in to get them, and he had no real ideas about what the motivating factor was for the folks who were trying to get in. And John Russo had previously had idea, an idea about people who were flesh eaters, and he said, well, what if we took my flesh eating idea and mixed it with your people trapped in the house? And supposedly that was kind of the genesis for, for the original Night of the Living Dead. But yeah, there was no thought about what exactly spurned this on. It was all left ambiguous. Whereas the return of the Living Dead and, and the Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead series and all that is all about social commentary and how people are zombies. And when it comes to Return of the Living Dead, 245-trioxin is the central <laughs> key element to the entire series. Maybe the only thing that really carries through. One of them uh, spells it differently. That they, yeah, but... spells it differently. Yeah, well, we'll get to installments four and five again. In the last two installments... That becomes trioxin five instead of two four five trioxin, mm -hmm. um, which, if I had more faith in the making of those movies, I would think it was their way of saying, "Oh, well, this is how we can get away with the rules being slightly different in this one." Is this not two four five trioxin? It's totally different. But, <laughs> yeah, I don't have any faith that that was the reason either. But so, speaking of two four five trioxin, that actually is the movie continues moving on from the one character says, "Yes, the events from Return of the Living Dead actually happened." They took all the land and all the corpses up and put them in barrels. And guess what? We actually have one by accident in the basement. And that's when he takes uh, the new hire down to the basement to show him the barrel. The barrel, I've always loved this scene. They're basically looking it over. This is dangerous. He's like, oh, no, this is government made. And he slaps it and it immediately starts venting gas into the room. The <laughs> <laughs> U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Bong. One of my favorite things is in that scene, in the whole movie, because I still, I, I keep thinking about it. So these barrels have the clear thing yes. on the top, so you can see the zombie. In. Yes. It's all murky. Yep. So he grabs some glass cleaner, gets a full roll of uh, paper towels, yep. spritzes it, and then he just uses the whole roll of toilet paper. <laughs> just run it right on. Paper and rubs it right on. And all I can think is, did they do that for expediency? Did he just not feel like messing with it? Or was that written in there? <laughs> now, one of the fun <laughs> things with that scene I really it's love is... just a random thing. All right, so two things I, I found. One, when they hit the canister, uh, the gas that comes out apparently is very yellow. The only way they can make that happen is by actually using sulfur. So what happens is it gave a great visual effect, but apparently everyone was set with just like gagging and coughing when it <laughs> happened. Just like sacrificing your actors for art's sake, basically. <laughs> but also, they have the signature scene 
where, oh, so the canister erupts, and you're looking down into the canister through the pane of glass, and then you see the corpse in there. It looks like a wrinkled, kind of dried-out husk, and then it begins to melt. Like, the, the whole, all of the flesh just starts melting off the face. The eyelids melt away, exposing the eyeballs. And they did that with a wax. Just kind of a wax mask over top of this, the, the zombie. very Raiders of the Lost It Earth. was fantastic, right. But here's the fun thing. In the scene, it all melts away, and then the glass explodes. And the, the hair catches fire. And the hair, yep. which, none of which is planned. Yep. <laughs> the glass exploding was completely unintentional. They didn't know it was going to happen, and it really sealed the deal, I felt. It was really perfect. Yeah, well, the way that happened was they were doing the scene, and Dan O'Bannon basically kept shouting at them to do it faster. Mm-hmm. He said, closer, 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 damn it. And they finally said, to hell with it. And they pushed it right up against the thing, and that was when the hair went up and the glass blew out. And Dan O'Bannon said, looks great, let's use it. <laughs> that was perfect. And that, that's the iconic, I guess iconic, mud man. Tarman. 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 Yeah, Tarman is a fantastic zombie. And what I love about Tarman is when he shows up, they really establish quickly that these zombies are not what you're used to. Before Romero, there were zombie movies. Yes. But they were almost all uh, like voodoo zombies or uh, like lobotomized zombies. It's essentially you are a living automata with no will and no purpose. You are just driven by your masters. Um, Which was what made them scary. Yes. But then with Romero, it was like, well, no, now it's, you're not just empty. You're all bestial instincts and and desires. You just want to eat, feed, do your random cycles of life because you don't know what what else to do. But basically just animalistic feeding. This was, if I recall, the first zombie movie to actually have them retain their mentality and essence and intelligence. Like, Tarman at one point actually uses a pulley system to try and rip someone out of, of a uh, closet. Yeah, straight up sets up a winch. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, <laughs> they are all driven. They all have one single goal, but they are also themselves. They are all yes. who they used to be. Just to a now, degree. Mostly. That's not consistent, even within the film, how much and how that works. Yeah, because there's the bit with Freddy at the end where he's passing away in the chapel, and you can basically see the moment where he basically switches over from being Freddy mm-hmm. and, and goes to being zombie Freddy. It, but that's mm-hmm. more of a personality change, I feel. It's more of a, you know, I am myself, and now I'm myself, but all I care about is getting these brains. Um, yeah. Which, funny enough, this is the first movie where zombies eat brains. It is. Yep. It's also the first one where they run. Yes. That's true. This is the first vast zombies. Yep. Although I am, I, one of my problems with this uh, minor problem, mind you, I, this is the kind of like little tidbits I catch, but then don't give a damn about because I still love the film, is that why do these zombies have any clue that brains will do for them what they want them to do? Yeah, just kind I of mean, it's, this base instinct at some point. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's this inherited from. It's one thing <laughs> if it was a base instinct. I want these brains and I don't know why. They're like, no, no, I, I want brains. This is uh, This is jumping ahead a bit. But they basically flat explain, we want to eat brains because it makes the pain of dying go away. It's like, how the hell would you know that just waking up from your from your coffin? Well, you you know? might not necessarily know that because they say they can smell them. That's different. If saying, you can... saying I'm hungry for brains is one thing. Saying I am actively seeking these out because they make the pain go away. Well, but the lady who says that the half corpse that they capture later in, in the mortuary mm-hmm. who says who explains why they eat brains doesn't necessarily say that that's that's how they know or anything that's just what they do but when they come up out of their brains brains because it smells good you know even even the ones on the who get on the thing doesn't he 
in my memory, he said, send more brains. But he actually says... Send more police. Send, send more, more police. paramedics. Yeah. The first one is send more paramedics and, and then send more cops. Yeah. Yeah, the first instance of it is send more paramedics. The second instance of it is send more cops. That line is one of the quick things about the original screenplay is they obviously knew that bit was money because it's actually repeated again. Mm-hmm. When the second set of paramedics show up, in one of the scenes that cracks me up where the dude just gets just tackled to the ground, they, there's a sequence in which they go and they grab the radio of that ambulance and the zombie says into it, send more paramedics. And yep. it's actually bolded and underlined. So they were like, oh, this is going to be money. There was actually another instance of it that was trimmed. I was really impressed with the budget they put into the special effects. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it'd be real easy to just have some minor appliances put on people that, you know, they get bit off and you're just biting these appliances off. But they had one paramedic, which was clearly not a real person, mm. who basically they turned his head into just a bowl of a skull left. And they were like, just like scooping brains out of this this skull bowl. It was, I was like, oh, hell yeah. And then they had the one zombie, they clearly got someone who was paraplegic. So he was there with these, and they, they put these small prosthetics to make it look like his legs had been like torn away or such. And he just starts coming after him on, on the stumps of his legs. It was like, I was like, wow, they really put out for this. I, I laughed initially when you mentioned that. So there's there's a lot of fantastic examples of great production design and makeup. There was almost some very bad ones. Oh, so sure. If you're interested in the movie, look up the original design for the headless cadaver that was put in place. It was done by a different makeup guy. And if you look closely in the scenes um, when the cadaver's running around, when it's behind the supply rack, you can still see it, where it was basically a person who was covered in yellow dental dam. So you could just see just constant rippling in, in the and it just looked terrible. You know, it looked like that dude in The Watchman who oils himself up before he slides into the sewer grate, um, <laughs> except yellow in this case. So that was actually kind of the nail in the coffin for the original effects and makeup person who was then replaced, who did some of the other stuff that's in the film, which looks great, but that one was almost very, very rough. I want to interject here real quick, because it's about here in the film, maybe a little before this, where they, not to talk about it too much but towards the end of the film the military get does get involved and so they do some establishing shots earlier on in the film with this one general and he's coming home and he is clearly going to be on duty 24 7 for at least a week or so while keeping an ear out for what happens with these barrels but he comes in and his wife's like hello honey i've made you dinner your favorite pork chops he's like i ate at work and he walks it's like it's this completely unnecessary to the plot on any level doomed military marriage they just wanted to delve on for five minutes it was lamb chops what the hell is this it was lamb chops it was lamb chops and i I only remember that because i remember thinking who the hell has lamb chops for lunch (laughs) when i was watching this and taking notes the first time i got to the dialogue exchange which was the wife saying how was your day and the general response the usual Crap, to which I just wrote, I am this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it was weird that they introduced that. They didn't do a lot with it, but they just made those people so miserable. Mm -hmm. Whereas everybody else was relatively okay. You know, they worked in this shitty medical warehouse in Louisville, Kentucky, but they were cool with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the punks, well, the one punk who kept walking off to stare in the middle distance, he was having a rough time. The one who who, who gets naked immediately, she seemed all right with things. And I might add, probably the first shaved woman I ever saw. It was actually, um, it's funny enough, when they did the production, she wasn't shaved at the first time. But they were like, we can't put this on television, you insane? And so they actually had a uh, plastic prosthesis put on. And they were like, that didn't help. <laughs> yeah, well, they shaved her first. So she, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, they did the initial take, and, and the producer came up and said, you can't show pubic hair in a movie. And they said, oh, okay, well. And 
they ask the makeup designer or the um, makeup person, they say, can you, you know, take one A off to the side and shave her? So they, you know, they shaved the bits and they went, they did another take and the producer said, my God, that's worse. <laughs> and which is how they came up with, well, now we have to do a prosthetic. So she's actually got a, what they referred to as a Barbie doll prosthetic down there to obscure things a bit. And it's also, they mentioned, that's why she's flashing up to the end of the movie a bit when this character who's named Trash becomes a zombie and there's lots of sequences of her just kind of walking through the mist where she has this very particular gait to this, you know, zombie walk she, she has. And it's this really kind of iconic sequence. But it's also, they mentioned, it's very much her trying to keep the plug in <laughs> so that it's the, the makeup prosthesis doesn't kind of fall off. So it was one that kind of had this inadvertently, you know, iconic effect of this ending. I like I like this idea that punks just get naked. Randomly. That's just randomly what punks do. Sure. I, I, I found her return problematic because she was just way too much in one piece. Yeah, apparently zombies, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's prefaced by before she does the, what's known as quote-unquote that scene in this movie, which no matter if you saw it, old or saw it young, if you say that scene in regards to Return of the Living Dead, people know what you're talking about. But the preface to that is she's talking about what's the worst way you could die, and she references that it would be old people descending on her and tearing her clothes off, which then happens later in the and film. And then eating her alive. Yeah. And then eating her alive, which then happens when zombies descend on her. And It was very prophetic. <laughs> and apparently do nothing but just kind of like bury her like five feet in mud, and it was like, hey, all right, job done. Oh, wait, we need a brains, right? <laughs> Move on to the next one. Well, actually, this uh, we should mention there is one big turn away from the Romero series in this film. So after they accidentally release Tarman and the, and the gas into the building, well, one of the medical cadavers in the first floor comes alive. And they're like, okay, well, we got to take care of this thing. We can't just let it continue to scream its head off in, in the freezer. And God forbid it gets out. So let's deal with it. Well, how do they deal with it in the movie? Well, they took out the brain. Like, okay, we'll do that. So this is when the, one of the first rules that the series sets up. The cadaver comes out, they wrestle to the ground, they get out like a pickaxe, and they go right into its head, and the son of a bitch keeps trying to come after them. Brain shots do not take these things out. Almost they're, nothing does. They're no, tough zombies. Yeah. They, they, they yeah. exist on, it, it exists on every level. You cut the arm off, the arm's coming after you. You know, you cut the ear off, it's going to wiggle its way towards you. You know, that's <laughs> how you get half a dog. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, they yeah, have yeah, the, uh, which shouldn't shoes. have been able to bark. But nonetheless, <laughs> to be fair, many of those corpses shouldn't be able to say anything, especially when your diaphragm is falling out of your chest cavity. Yes. But in this case, you could see. Oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's fascinating that you could. That was my only one complaint as well from the physics perspective of it. I've accepted it as the rules and I'll live and I'll move on with my life. But without a brain, to some degree, these things are still themselves and who they used to be, almost like the personalities are permeating throughout the body. Hmm. It's know? also flesh based because the skeletons don't come back. Yeah, they do. Oh, yes, they do. Yeah, they do. do. They? Uh, sort of. The, the, one the, of the very first, first one we see, the one that they... The skeleton they head comes up, it looks up, its mouth drops open, it opens its eyes. It's like almost nothing but skeleton. Yeah. Which is another reason... But the, the skeletons people... in the warehouse don't come back. Uh, not the Those ones we do. saw, no. Yeah. So I guess there has to be some portion of flesh attached, because that yes. one that comes up in the gray still has its eyes. I will agree with that. Um, if it's just skeletons, they don't come back. Or maybe it doesn't affect Indians. Yeah. Possible and, and actually that <laughs> in the mentioned. in the resurrection cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> no, the zombie that comes up, the one we're talking about that comes up in the grave in the original script and in the original art, you were supposed to see its lungs, and it was this big thing about how you could see its lungs inflate with air for the first time, and it lets out this horrible scream. And instead, what you got was pretty much a bone clean skeleton, except for the eyes that were in place. 
And that's kind of another reason the, the first special effects person got let go yeah. was the production designer said, I think that looks like crap. You can see all the wires. Whatever, yeah. whatever. And Dan O'Bannon was very unhappy with it. At the same time, it became this iconic scene for the film, too. Yeah, so yeah. unhappy he used it twice. Well, it's interesting because what really triggers all of it is the, the zombie you mentioned, the cadaver mm-hmm. that they bring over to the mortuary, which introduces the weirdest character in the entire movie. Ernie, 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 Ernie Kaltenbrunner. Is he supposed to be a Nazi? Well, actually, there's a lot of evidence to that fact. For starters, he speaks German a couple times. He's listening to some German music when you first meet him. He is, he is listening to the German Africa Corps march song Panzer Roland in Africa War. He's carrying a German pistol. And I don't know if you saw it or not, in the mortuary, there's a caricature of Hitler on the goddamn wall. Yeah. There's also a picture of Eva Braun. Yes! Um, and there's the fact that Ernst Kaltenbrunner is an actual Nazi. He is an actual real-life Nazi. Holy who, shit! Who was tried at Nuremberg. Holy shit! Um, this comes up because Don Kalfa, who played him, if you check out the special features on the Blu-ray, the Shop Factory Blu-ray of this movie, which I highly recommend, he shares an anecdote in which he was telling his friend, I got cast in a movie, and he's, who are you playing? And he's Ernie Kaltenbrunner. He's, Come again? <laughs> Ernie Kaltenbrunner. You know who that is, right? No. And then he looked it up. Yep. Real Nazi. So it's the most why? random addition to the film. It serves no purpose to the plot. It's just he's a random mortician who is an escaped Nazi. I wonder if that's any yeah. connection because there was a lot of Nazi symbolism and a Nazi infiltration into the punk scene. And I wonder if that's some sort of connection to the, the movie being about punks and stuff. Yeah, it's hard to tell because there's a lot of the movie that's clever and then there's a lot of it I think that's just Dan O'Bannon being quirky and stuff he thought was interesting or amusing. For You know, there's the furnace sequence when they have chopped the cadaver up at one point and go to burn those in the furnace. If you look on either the plates on either side of the furnace, the names are David Geiler and Walter Hill, who are the two writers who tried to get Dan O'Bannon pushed off and tried to get his, his credits pushed off being like <laughs> movies. So it's, you know, get a reference to those two bastards in there. So there's a lot of little bits and pieces. So it's I don't know if the if the Nazi thing specifically was just Dan O'Bannon found it funny and no one else did. Or Speaking of O'Bannon's humor, there's one tip that I found looking it up. It's apparently on the back of Freddy's jacket in the theatrical version, mm-hmm. um, the words, fuck you, are displayed. And apparently after realizing the shot couldn't be used in case they ever were shown on TV, a second jacket was made that says television version on it. TV version. TV version. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you talk about that stuff. Did you catch the eye chart in his office? Yes. That's hilarious. It said just be letters at first, but when you read it out, it says. Bird is a slave driver and a son of a bitch who was bald too. And I think ha ha. I think ha ha is there. I I couldn't (laughs) get the last word on the eye chart, which is ironic. But yeah, and a lot of that stuff. Some of this is obviously Dan O'Bannon, but, but a lot of folks who work on the movie mentioned that pretty much most of what you see in the background is the work of the production designer, yep. William Stout, who I wish we had seen this before we went to the Baltimore Comic Con this year because he was actually there. Was he? Um, yeah. He's done a lot of movie artwork, but he was only the production designer on a handful of films, and this was one of them. So yeah, he did a lot of the zombie work and a lot of little bits of pieces, and I'm pretty sure the eye chart in the background, I think that was him. Well, it's not surprising that little stuff like that's there. I know they specifically went well out of their way to make this more comical, specifically to differentiate it from Romero. Yeah, that was yeah, that was Dan O'Bannon saying he wanted to differentiate it from Romero, and also like is probably very much a reaction to the original script which he read because again, there's there's no humor in it. It's just rudimentary people being awful in very bland expository ways. So I think Dan O'Bannon's version of punching that up was to inject some humor and some levity into it and also throw out 99% of it. Mm -hmm. 
And that's, I would say that this movie, I wouldn't quite go so far as say horror comedy, but it's real close. It's horror it with, with comedic aspects. And it's, and it walks that, that line that makes horror comedies good with There's real stakes for the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, it can pivot back and forth a little bit between the more comedic stuff and the outright abject horror. And less directly as something like Shaun of the Dead or Dead Snow 2 or something like that, but it definitely has that element. And I don't remember there being a lot of horror comedy prior to this. No, not really. No, not that I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there's probably some, but but none to this degree, yeah, I mean, to this particular you know, yeah. tone. Now, I'm sure we're wrong on some level. And you can feel free to uh, reply with your findings on that anytime you want on our Twitter account. But that... Kind of brings us to the second one, if we're ready to go there. Got more on the first one we want to... Some real quick things. Notice on the first one, I just wanted to note, I don't think anyone actually talks about this or knows. The only thing it seems to be able to stop these damn things is pressure, is my impression. Because the only time I've ever seen them not moving is when they're stuck in pressurized tanks. Like, they're not scrambling to get out. Apparently, high pressure is the only thing that can stop them. Well, that would be a crematorium. Yeah. <laughs> and complete immolation, which just has an unfortunate side effect. But then it's the problem. It's 245 trioxin is so sturdy. It is so unstoppable. You burn it at high enough temperatures to turn an entire body to ash. And it goes, I'm still ready to play, people. Let's go. And it just takes off into the atmosphere and yeah. uh, rains down the graveyard and brings everything else back. Which is kind of how the movie ends. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's, it's one yeah. of the only chemicals I've ever seen in a film where the only way to stop it is to literally scoop it up barrel it up and hide the barrels for all eternity there's no way to stop it but in this case they they nuke it with a nuke from a train but then it just comes on back but, <laughs> and the, the, the very obviously model train nuke launcher <laughs> yeah. out in the woods somewhere that stop motion shell being loaded into that, it. that was one of my favorite things because it's just so random that you know all this but here's this missile launcher yeah I do like how they secured the mortuary too. Like they went, they spent a fair amount of time like securing all the damn windows and doors in that that place. A little touches the yeah, detail. For a comedy, like. in, in a lot of ways, the plot logic is actually not that bad. You know, because step one is, I mean, aside from the comedic bits, like, you know, step one was go for the brain. That didn't work. Cut into as many pieces as we can and, and completely immolate it. It was a solid plan, just an unfortunate side effect. In um, fact, all of the plans in the movie are relatively solid. That you know, yes. the paramedics will get the cops out. The cops will know what to do. Cops will get jumped and. Unmasked, but you know, and then they they barricade the area, and the zombies just overrun them because they don't know what they're dealing with. All right, I do have one last thing I want to say. Well, a question for you actually, and I'm going to ask you this a lot in the future coming up. Okay. In this movie, was there a too stupid to live moment for you? No, I wouldn't say so. Well, I, agree, I mean, but for you, I need to know. No, that, that, that's really <laughs> mostly a, a feature of... Found footage. Found footage. Agreed. Because you know they're going to die at the end of found footage. Yes. Because it's called found footage. <laughs> um, We're still going to need a Too Stupid to Live music cue for this podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, our equivalent of the Final Fantasy, you know, because that's going to come up a lot. When I get around to making you guys watch a bunch of found footage movies that I've seen and you haven't and you're going to hate, we'll work on that. I'm ready. One of the other things that I, one last point for me about this that I thought was interesting is that a lot of characters technically live. I mean, they, I'm sure, die in the nuclear blast. But up until that they moment. they survive the zombies. A because fair number of them make it, yes. Spider, the woman whose name I'm not going to remember. Uh, it was, so the people who survived were Casey, Chuck, Spider, Bert. And then technically Ernie, Tina, and Freddie are up in the attic. And Frank made it close until the end when he immolates himself, which was actually a script change. So uh, just quick tangent on that. 
in the finished version of the movie, Frank, played by Jimmy Karen, kills himself by loading himself into the crematorium. In a really place. moving scene. Yeah, yeah takes the time to take his wedding ring. Yeah, uh, that was all added. That was, it all was basically fantastic. it was all basically made up on set in yep. the original script. Everything is the same with his character up until the bit where he escapes from the chapel. Following that bit, he barricades himself in Ernie's office, and he's starting to zombie out a bit. He sees a rat scuttling across. He eats the rat's head and gets a little bit of a dose of brains, which kind of evens him out a bit. And he then escapes from the office, makes it through the graveyard, and he makes it to a phone booth, at which point he calls a cab. And there's an earlier reference in the film, frequent references, to him wanting to get back to his wife. Yeah. I just want to get back to my wife. So his bit of the movie, whereas the final bit of the movie has the, the still shots right before the bomb drops in the original script, his was a shot of him standing on the street corner right as a cab pulls up. So it, basically he was this close to getting home before the, the bomb dropped. Huh. And on set, Jimmy Karen suggested, well, what if I went out a different way and burned myself a bit? And Dan O'Bannon said, I like it, but how do you want to set it up? So, and then the sequence where they introduce the furnace, there's the cutaway with Jimmy Karen turns to, to Freddie and says, you know, some favor, I could operate that goddamn thing. And that was a line that they wrote specifically to set up that he then uses it towards the end of the film. It's really well done. I think it adds a lot to it. Yeah, that was one of the, of two divergences plot-wise from the script. The other one is in the original cadaver attack, Bert's actually bitten by the cadaver during that sequence. Okay. So then when we get to the sequence in the finished film, when they're debating putting Freddy and Frank in the chapel to kind of isolate them a bit, that turns into a more typical, or what we now know is a typical zombie paranoia sequence where they retort that if you're going to lock us up, why don't you lock yourself up? You were bitten. And it, and it turns into this extended who do you trust sequence. So they, they just ended up obviously cutting that out of the finished film. Hmm. And I, I'd say we would all agree that this is a good movie. I this love was, it. It was a I fun movie. It's a, it's a classic. It does. It sets up a lot of what we know and what gets used in the zombie genre today. I would say this and Night of the Living Dead are kind of, they're different movies, but they are sort of the, the two roots two, of the same tree. Yeah. The Cain and Abel of zombie movies. Can I make one more point on why I think this movie's good? And then we'll, Please. We'll, we'll get on to the second where you're probably not going to hear the word good tossed around as much. Um, <laughs> Part of the reason I think this movie is as good as it is, so I did one, when I got a hold of the screenplay, I just kind of read it and kind of watched the movie side by side. And the biggest difference between the screenplay and the finished film is the fact that, or there's no line of dialogue in the original script that's exactly what you see in the finished film. Each line of dialogue is like 75 to 90%, but there's a word changed here or there. For everyone except Clue Gulliger, who plays Bert, all the other members of the cast, they had a two-week lead time going into the making of this. And during that, it was basically just a two-week period of them saying, well, how about I say it like this? And how about I say it like this? And you get all these little touches. One Jake mentioned earlier, which is Frank, when, when they're looking at the tar man, and he windexes the glass and rubs the, the paper towels on it. It's all these little touches. And that, I think, is part of why goes a long way towards the comedy, well, towards all elements of the film, is everyone feels so organic. Everyone had this little window to give everything a personal touch, to write little bits for the characters and make it their own. And if you haven't already, and us rambling on about this movie makes you feel like doing a rewatch, please go back and rewatch it just for Jimmy Karen, who plays Frank. Uh, just watch him in every scene. Uh, you know, he's, he's chewing scenery a bit, but yep. he's so much fun to watch. Fantastic. In fact, I was rewatching it right before we recorded this pod, and there's there's little bits he does that I never noticed. You know, for instance, the sequence where Bert makes Ernie swear that he's not going to say anything about what they're about to do and burning the zombies. If you watch Jimmy Karen, he actually just kind of puts one hand over his heart and raises one hand yep. up in like a 
Polite's gesture. So yeah, just wonderful fun. And I would say it's a classic. I would I would brand it a classic of the genre, classic of eighties horror, classic of eighties punk panic, and all of that. But then they made four sequels, <laughs> and things go south very fast. Real quick, let's just establish the rules in the first one so we can see how they change across. So with the end of the first movie, they decided to make sequels. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they chose poorly. They <laughs> probably well. shouldn't have. But the early sequels at least stick to the rules. Yes. Um, some of the rules are very crucial. Trioxin uh, 245 reanimates entire bodies. They're not just brains and, sp- and nervous systems. You cut the arm off, the arm will keep coming after you. It's important to note. Uh, direct contact with the gas will first kill you over time, producing things you'd see in a dead body. Uh, no heartbeat, rigor mortis. Very painful process, takes a bit of time, and then eventually there's a turning point where you officially become brain-obsessed. But mainly it's trioxin. Brain shots don't kill it. Oh, if it's uh, diluted into rain, it will cause kind of a burning sensation in the skin, but it won't turn people, but it will raise the already dead. So the second movie, Return of the Living Dead 2, is essentially a remake. It's almost like a reboot. Yeah. yeah. I was very confused by this yeah. because I didn't. I remember seeing, we, we talked in the first mm-hmm. part about box covers. I didn't remember the Return of the Living Dead box cover, but I distinctly remember the second one. Mm-hmm. And I just always assumed it was a sequel. And then it starts out with the same two dudes from the first one. Yep. And, and they're not the same characters. I mean, technically they are, but they're, it's it's a completely like parallel universe effect. Yeah, it's it's quasi-sequel, quasi-soft reboot. One thing that the film opens with, and talking about kind of the, Nick mentioning the core principles of 245 Trioxin, one of the things I thought was actually amusing about the second one is they established in the first one that the 245 Trioxin was designed to be used in the war against marijuana. <laughs> yep. I have and, a note somewhere that's yeah. just yeah. all caps, the war against <laughs> marijuana, <laughs> which I think is in the third one that they say uh, that. Uh, they say it in the first one, too. Do they? Yeah, they okay. sound sound the first, they say it again in the third. But in the second one, so the second movie opens with a military convoy carrying barrels of 245 trioxin, and one of them, due to the driver being inattentive, spells out of the back because he's smoking a joint. Yep. <laughs> he is high. And it's such a long sequence. Yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. It just goes on. It's like it's cut to him filler. smoking, tuck, cut to the truck. Smoking truck. Smoking truck. Smoking truck. It's like truck. they're trying to establish, like, look, look, that van holding the place is slowly going down. It also opens with that voiceover, which was... I don't. I mean, like, I don't. I barely remember what it said. My only note is, "Oh my God, a voiceover." <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's kind of just a loose recap of the first film. And then it cuts, so it's it's this awful long opening sequence that's just the same two shots back and forth, set to. I looked up the song, and now I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't particularly interesting. No, they say "Gonna Ride, Gonna Ride" a lot in the opening song. And then it cuts to the kid. Looking through his comics. Yep. Yep. So that's something I wanted to mention is after the opening credits, the very next shot you get is is one of the protagonists, a kid. As soon as you see that kid on screen, this movie is exactly what you think it's going to be. It's Mm -hmm. basically, if you saw the Hudsucker proxy and there's the running gag and that about Tim Robbins saying, you know, for kids. That's (laughs) kind of the running theme of Return of the Living Dead 2 is then going, you know, for kids. (laughs) And he, he looks through a pretty good collection of comics that he is treating very poorly. Uh, he looks through a good collection of uh, Spider-Man comics. Yeah, that none of them bag and boarded, just treat them all like crap. But then later we get the custom comic that they did for the, the movie, which is called Masterman, which I thought was an interesting commentary on how long comic runs used to be, because Masterman looked like dog shit. 
but they got 53 issues of that according <laughs> to that notice. I, I tried to find more about that like who might have drawn it what anything about it. i could find nothing about it except like replicas of it yeah same but i i have a note here that this kid treats his comics poorly not against him dying <laughs> And then he, he, he pulls the comic out, and he runs out to the two kids on the curb, and he gives them, they say, you can be in our club. And he's like, I don't want to be in your club. And all you think is, why'd you give him the fucking comic? Am I the only two guys, am I the only person who was actually kind of on the side of the boys in this? Because this kid gives him a comic. They want to reciprocate. They take him out. They take him to the cemetery. And one of my favorite bits of the movie was just the main bullies, just deadpan delivery of the line. We got a meeting. It's, it's, a, it's a bully club. There's two of them. They're just trying to have quorum. It's hard to have quorum when you got two people. And they just want to get this third kid in, and he's fighting them tooth and nail. So I, I really identified with the bullies in this. I, you know, I did too. And I, I tell you, throughout the entire film, there is nothing that kid does that makes me want him to survive this film. <laughs> he is possibly the most irritating character across all five of these films. Ooh, that's a big say. The only one who gives any close is the ostensible protagonist male in the third one. He's pretty... Because I was rooting for him to die the whole thing, too. Yeah. But if you'd like to subject yourselves to the same agony we all just went through, we can open up a Twitter poll to find out <laughs> who is the most reprehensible and intolerable character in the Return of the Living Dead franchise. Well, but, but so this one starts with the two guys, Robin Graves, for brains. Apparently. Not brains, skulls. 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 They, want, they okay. want interred skulls, at least 10 years old. For what? Who knows? Apparently there's big money involved in uh, collecting skulls. Yeah, so these characters are played by James Karen and Tom Matthews, who are, are reprising, not reprising the roles from the first one, but are reprising a similar character dynamic. The character played by Tom Matthews, he has a different girlfriend. In this movie, it's not played by the same actress who played Tina. This is played by actress Suzanne Snyder. One of the notes I had for this, who she is present with them on their job, and one of the notes I had for this movie was, you know, in a way, this is actually a better romance movie than Return of the Living Dead 3, which we're about to get to. But it's, does anything say true love more than deliberately tagging along with your boyfriend during his day job as a grave robber? Because <laughs> that, that's love. I kept asking myself, why is she here? <laughs> yeah, the whole setup, it felt so perfunctory in this one. In the, in, mm -hmm. in the first movie, they actually tried to make a movie. In this one, they're just trying to remake a movie. I assume it's some sort of cash grab. Oh, absolutely. Because they don't really do anything interesting in this entire film. Well, the, what they do is they, the first film was clearly horror with comedic aspects. They were like, let's lean into the comedy. Be more comedic with this one and have a comedy with, with terrific aspects. Yeah, this one was written and directed by Ken Wiederhorn, who self-professed, if you listen to interviews with the crew from this, everyone talks about how he, he outright said during the making of it that he wasn't a horror fan. The last movie he made before this was Meatballs 2, so you can kind of see the, yeah. the connection there. But what's particularly odd about that is if you look at his filmography, there are horror films in it previously. He just wasn't particularly keen on this one. And that's kind of one of the big detractors for the second one, which is, in a way, so the director is very much ambivalent in the making of this, and it just very much comes through in the finished product. And ambivalence is one of the worst things you can have in a horror film. Yep. Uh, even if a horror film is terrible, at least in most cases, there's some semblance of someone who is 100% behind what they were doing and, and just swinging for the fences. Missed completely, struck out, and then some. But you do not get any of that in this film. It's very much, yeah, just say action and, you know. And it explains it because most of the dialogue is just people yelling. Yep. Incoherently. Yeah. You know, and I gotta get out of here, ah, and running around, and you know that's so much of the movie is just that. Like, there's there's not there's not anything clever 
in this, or, or particularly interesting, other than the kids' comic collection, because I like comics. So that grabbed me. But oh, yeah. everything else was just, it was just beat for beat. Like, well, what, is, what do you, uh, here we're in the graveyard. Ah, oh, there's zombies. Well, make them make jokes or something. To be, to be uh, fair, to reference them leaning into the comedy bit, the zombies wake up in the graveyard had one of the funniest bits I had seen in a while. Where, like, you had one zombie get up out of a grave, and the other one comes walking by and falls right into it. Yeah, I did appreciate that. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I can see that happening. That's great. And he had the other zombie trying to claw his way out, and one zombie steps on his hand. He's like, ah, and he pulls it back, and he's hesitant to get out again. And just as he starts to come out again, another one comes up and steps right on his head. <laughs> yeah, for as much as this movie leads into comedy, there's every now and again there's a bit that's legitimately amusing. Related to what we talked about in the first one, did you guys grow up on this one? No. I had never seen this before I watched it for this podcast. Yeah, I, I grew up on this one, but like I said, it was on, it was the cut one. On like it was on, on television. Well. It was television cut. But there wouldn't be nearly as much to cut in this one. In fact, mm. this movie almost got a PG thirteen rating. I'm not surprised um, at all. It was there's a bit on the IMDb trivia that notes if it wasn't for the scene at the hospital where they shoot the zombie in half and the two halves are crawling around, then it would have gotten a PG thirteen. Yeah. So that's just emblematic of the degree to which they tone this down. But I was curious if you had grown up on it, like if that kind of softened the edges of the movie a little bit. And you know, gave you a little bit more nostalgia in there. Absolutely, yeah, humor Absolutely. Works a little bit better. Uh, it's it's speaking of the comedy bits, like they leaned in. I feel the, the hardest on the comedy with the doctor. Oh god, he was so yeah. goddamn over the top with the comedic. He was just like this bumbling fool of a person who existed for punchlines. But it wasn't really even like was. 1988 comedy. No, it was, it was like, like Youngman. Yes. yes. It was like 1950. It was like, this is Abbott and Costello meet, yep. meet the zombies. Is 100% But he was the only made. one doing that. Yep. Everybody else was doing some sort of other thing. It was so incongruous. Mm -hmm. it, it was like the kid plot with the bully. It yep. stood out. It, it, was, it did not fit the movie it was in. But it, it made sense because like I remember... When they find the canisters and they see the zombies in them, they're so happy looking. Yes. This is like the happiest zombies I've ever seen in a film or in this. <laughs> yeah, we have a way happier tar man in this one, too. Played by the same actor, Alan yes. Troutman. Yes, yes. Who only, he only shows up. He gets out and walks out and the kid kicks him he's, into the river and it's the last done. you see and that's him. it. Yeah. Yep. He actually uh, worked for Jim Henson Puppetry yes. Department. So he's, he's all this wholesomeness out there and he's always also tar man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it just... It's funny because the, the two bullies get a full-on gas to the face, but then you only ever see one of them again. Yeah, the yep. kid never shows up. You know, and it, it sets up this confrontation where you're rooting for the zombie bully to kill this annoying-ass kid. <laughs> and it doesn't work out like that. But I guess the other thing, the only thing I real take away from this movie in terms of the franchise, I would say, is, is it establishes another way to kill them that kind of works with the previous way. Because it doesn't conflict with anything. Right, right. Ones. Is is the electricity because electricity would you know theoretically kill tissue right so so, so where that's... fire that can melt uh, can can burn a body down to its <laughs> ashes and components won't do the job electricity will stop trioxin yeah and I, I thought that was kind of interesting that the zombies were just as strong and powerful and fast as in the first one although with mm -hmm. way more comedic timing and so much straight lines and one liners it, it established that that didn't feel too incongruous. To, to what they had done in the previous film, which was odd. I don't want to compliment this in any fashion, <laughs> and I feel like well, it's a bit of a compliment, there, there and I don't mean it that way. There are definitely moments that made me cock my head and go, what? Like, for the one character with the girlfriend, he has his moment where he turns, and he's chasing her because he wants her brains, and he gets her cornered in this church. He's like, 
honey, I love you. I just, I just need, I need your brains. Uh, you know, I love you, but I need your brains. And she's like, okay. I'm like, wait, what? It's <laughs> <laughs> so like, she just decides to sit there and let him nibble on her head. And so you have this moment where you hear the crunch and she has this almost like, oh, kind of like, like, like she's getting off on it for Christ's sake. I'm like, wait, what is going on here? And then they fade to like the next scene and you never come back and address it. Again, you can make a case that this is a better romance than Return of the Living Dead 3. We're about to get to it. There's also like the general in it saying, not again. And I'm like, well, yeah, you made yeah. the same movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the definition of yes again. <laughs> I One thing I did enjoy about it, and I, I meant to look it up to see if it's, but Mitch Pileggi is in it. Yes, yes he is. I was going to ask you He about plays the, uh, the, the role of Sarge. <laughs> yeah, randomly uh, in the tower years before he gets on X Files. Yeah, yeah. and they—they they, oh wow, was it? Yeah, yeah. just and before X Files. And those soldiers don't make any sense. They're just driving around town shooting things. And then you know, <laughs> what are you doing here? The town's quarantined off, but you're just hunting things. What what's going on? They were there to make sure there are no stragglers, and they found stragglers. Yeah, I just I don't know because the whole town is quarantined by the soldiers, mm-hmm. and these guys are in there. I mean, I it was one of those things where my brain tries to inherently make sense of plots and this was not the franchise to do that but not this installment no i feel i will say this this being 1988 years after thriller which the other one was too close to thriller that michael jackson zombie at the end was inevitable (laughs) Uh, almost didn't make it in yeah that was someone had had a jacket on set and they and they hemmed and hawed a bit about whether or not to do it and they finally decided to pull the trigger on it Mm -hmm. and i guess for a lot of folks it's kind of the i guess around the time it came out it was the most memorable Part of the film, I think, for a lot of folks, based on what I read. Well, I can safely say that I enjoyed this one. I liked it. I would not say it was remotely awful. It stuck to the franchise. It stuck to the rules. And it was basically just a sequel, which was worse than the first. But you get that a lot. I don't think it killed the franchise at all. It was. It which was I a think bit like would then lead into the third one. It was. It was to some degree. It was a bit like Evil Dead Two. Yes. And that it was kind of a slideways sequel a remake of the, the first one with yeah. a bigger budget. Yeah, though they wasted yeah. the budget, but it was yes. a bigger budget. It was Evil Dead 2 if Sam Raimi became a parent in between Evil Deads 1 and 2. Yes. Like, I want to make an Evil Dead one for my kids this time. I can see I can that. See that. Um, yeah, that's Easily. kind of the approach for, for this one. I didn't hate it. You know, for much no. as I talk about ambivalence being the worst thing that a horror movie can be, for all that, you know, I can't hate it. It's generally bland. There are a couple bits that I thought were legitimately amusing. Very rarely does it have anything that kind of comes close to the jokes of the first film. The only no. thing I thought that came close was the bit where they, they cut to the city streets and it establishes the first place the zombies head to is a pet store. Mm-hmm. So it's just this wide shot of like 10 zombie extras with just basically just bits of fur flying everywhere. <laughs> and it's kind of the one bit in the movie where it kind of had that same edge of kind of cruelty that the first film yeah. kind of had with its humor. Yeah. It I, wasn't a laugh out loud bit, but it was like, all right, that's vaguely tonally in line. I do like the the moment where they come up with a plan. And they're like, okay, we're going to get them all to the power station where we'll electrocute them and take them all out. Well, how are we going to get them there? And they like pack up the truck with cow brains yeah. and they just start chucking them out the back of the truck, leading the zombies them. Uh, oh, I love that. Yeah, that had the one line from the kid I like, which is when they're getting ready to coax him into going out to lure the zombies. And the kid has a line says, I know that look. I get it from my mom, and she wants me to volunteer for dishes. Like, that was mildly amusing. <laughs> I was just, I was so against that kid at that point. I, you know, just throw him out of the back. Save the cow brains. I had more attachment to them. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, it, in the end, it felt sort of pointless there, to there, me. There are ways the movie could have been better. I feel it wasn't a waste. Yeah, I disagree. I like. Honestly, my feeling on the rest of the series. <laughs> well, now, see, I like the third one a lot more than the second one. I like the second one more than the third one. 
Which is not to say that the third one was by any stretch a good movie. The third one leaned away from, well, do we, do we want to start the third one now? Yes, I do, because I'm flabbergasted. So you just said you <laughs> liked the second one more than the third one? Oh, yeah. Oh, my good, I legitimately did not expect that. Absolutely. The third one was the one I was most excited to discuss because I really thought it was going to be, you were going to like it significantly more than Jake and I in this case. No. Wow, okay, this is going to be good. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are aspects of it I enjoyed. I love Melinda Clark. I think she's a great actress. And I think while, you know, this may not be a pinnacle of her career, I thought she brought a fair amount to it. Not the pinnacle of her career. You don't say. (laughs) I am. My problem is I love me some Brian Usner. Yes. He's done many a film and I run into him a lot because of my personal love for H.P. Lovecraft. And many of the H.P. Lovecraft films that were produced and directed out there were by him. Uh, and, uh, mainly produced, yeah, but yeah. Direct, yeah, a lot of the Stuart Gordon ones. But, but a lot of uh, Yuzna, I, I feel, has a very much a similar formula. We're going to do Monster Parade and throw in boobs. And we don't need to worry about character depth, character development. Now, when we're talking about the first one where they kept throwing in little bits to like you know things you didn't need, but it's just going to mm-hmm. add story to it, you get almost none of that with the Yuzna film. I feel it was a lot of setup to have Melinda Clark just be her Mistress of the Dark kind of, you know, gothy zombie hotness. And then we're going to take you back to the facility where we can show you all these different ways we can fuck with zombies and make them look weird. It was all about goo factor, shock factor. And I felt it really, I think I felt it killed the franchise, honestly. Mm. I feel that was what, I mean, like, while the second one could have been better and could definitely have been improved upon by a director in certain changes, I felt the third one was just like, well, let's take this and kind of crap on it, and oh, we made our money, who cares what happens next? That's uh, interesting. Yeah, I, that's not how I felt about it at all. Now, I wouldn't say it was a good movie. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot I didn't, I wouldn't, I didn't, wouldn't even say I, I outright enjoyed it, but I liked that, first of all, I didn't like the goofy, the, the, just all the way lean into the goofiness in the second one. And it establishes right away that the the tone is more serious than the third one. Well, the third one said, instead of leaning into silly, it's leaning into sexual. Yeah, but there's also a political overtone to some of that stuff. A bit. And I I wouldn't go so far again as feminist, but it's it's not completely absent that you can read some of it that way. It's it's certainly the most political of the three, depending on how you... You make a case. Again, this could... I watched these two back to back. In fact, I watched two, three, and four all back to back. So my brain could just have revolted <laughs> and found tried to find anything worthwhile in these films, and it found it in the the third one. But it, it for me, it's again, it's not a good movie. I no. will never watch this film again. No, uh, I resent you making me watch this. <laughs> this was my idea, but it didn't feel like as much of a waste as the second one. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. All my shock at, at Nick. For me, expressing shock at Nick not liking it more than he did, it's not to say I I like this movie. I didn't particularly like it. But the main thing that surprised me with it was, so when you watch this movie, the very first thing you see is the Trimark logo. And then after the Trimark logo goes, you are instantly hit with, this is 90s direct-to-video horror. Yep. You get, it has that sort of score that electronica score where it feels like a composer was kidnapped in the dead of night <laughs> and then had a burlap sack pulled over their heads and they found themselves seated in front of a Casio keyboard with a gun to their head and said, you're going to need to score this movie in real time. Ready? Go. And in this case, <laughs> what they defaulted to in a state of panic was just to rip off the James Horner score from Aliens because they play a very not 
not at all distant riff on the track Feudal Escape like three times in this movie. I, my very first I note, had, though, was that, you know, I loved what they did with the music in the first one so much that the lack of that same level of attention I felt in this one took away from me. Well, in the first one, they had bands like The Cramps. In this one, they had bands like The Claytown Troupe, which <laughs> there's a very, very long shot of their open their first CD. I think it was their first CD. And I looked it up. Claytown Troupe. That can't be real. Real band. <laughs> Which song is theirs? Uh, I don't know. I was but it's the seat when they when they cut to the scene to where they're having sex in this room. It pans over this CD for a while, and this, I looked it up, and it's a real British band. I was curious about that, whether or not it was the song during that particular scene, because, yeah, there is a sex scene between the lead characters in this movie, and they sandwich early on that these characters are kind of gothy. You know, the first time we see Melinda Clark, she's holding a cigarette lighter under, you know, she's into piercings and into all this kind of stuff. What kind of goth high school kids fuck to John Tesh? <laughs> <laughs> Go back and watch that scene and listen to what's going It's ridiculous. It's the Claytown Troop, who had to be related to somebody <laughs> making this movie. Joe Tesh. Well, you know, we, need, we need a 90s band. But I, I like the, the scene where you're introduced to the kids because it's so utterly lost boys. Because it's they're on the beach, it's like dusk and then they're like oh i got the key so we can go in and what are they going to do break into a military base <laughs> why are they breaking in there no particular reason she's a thrill seeker that's it it was 100 just for her she, was just, she wanted to break into a military compound and that's why she got her rocks off the ladies love ventilation chefs <laughs> <laughs> and it's the goofiest military base too because it's just like four tunnels and two rooms yep and you know four military people who all hate each other one of which is Ursa from Superman 2, Sarah Douglas. Yes, yes. And this kind of goes to show where my priorities are, because when I was taking notes watching this the first time, my first line was, holy shit, it's Queen Teramis. Not, holy shit, it's Ursa, like a rational human being. No, <laughs> holy shit, it's that actress from Conan the Destroyer. Not even the good Conan movie. See, my, my first note is, love the menacing opening theme, followed by the terrible hand cam overhead shot, followed by, why is a zombie in an Outland costume? <laughs> because when they see the, yeah. the zombie, it's in this weird harness that covers up its junk. But then, so when we saw that zombie for the first time, so the the zombie in this, he has that same kind of super gaunt appearance. And when he first appeared, I said, "Oh, I'm, it looks like it's Alan Troutman, the guy who played the Tar Man in the first two. He has kind of the same, you know, the face looks different, but kind of has the same body type. Turns out that was a homeless man that Brian Yosna knew, and oh my God. who he coaxed into being on set. And you mentioned that the jumper he's in, apparently they had trouble with that because his junk kept flopping out during the, uh, <laughs> the making of the movie. And then, then they bring it back, and it, you know, they think it's dead, you know, whatever. And they, they hit it with the freeze gun or some shit. Which yeah. is the first time they start messing with the rules. Because you're getting to a situation where if you freeze the brain, all the other parts of the body decide they're not going to play along either. Whereas we've already established earlier on that you cut an arm off, it's still going to keep coming after you. In fact, the freeze the brain shouldn't matter. You're well, freezing so the, the whole thing, because the other two movies freeze take the place whole in summer. Thing, well, uh, summer and fall. Yeah, no, if you freeze the whole thing, I would agree with that. You know, you have a frozen corpse sickle, it's not going to do anything. But these are clearly bullets that, like, go hit the brain. You see them freeze up and frost up on just the skull region, but the whole thing drops. I'm like, eh. But my favorite thing about that is they ignore it, and it comes back, and it stabs the dude. Yeah. It doesn't say brains. It stabs the dude. Yep. <laughs> Why is the zombie stabbing dudes? I mean, to be fair, one could argue that it, they are intelligent. It could be saying, I'm going to kill this thing and then eat its brain. You yeah, know? but if I, all I, the other ones yeah. come out like, oh, man, it's brains time. No, I get you. And this guy's yeah, like, you know what? I'm going to shank this bitch. Then no, I'm going to eat really his brain. Don't. Yeah, yeah, they don't talk in this one. Yeah, like, all maybe the ancillary a little... ones that show up later on. They're less intelligent. Like, They're less intelligent. Yeah. 
And then, you know, it kind of unfolds more like a sort of a traditional horror movie. Like they, they see this, they get, you know, so afraid that they leave the house and they go and have sex to John Tesh. <laughs> and then his dad comes home and says, we're leaving, you know, we're moving. And because I want to get you away from this weird girl or whatever, there was some. No, he's being shipped off to a new base. Yeah, he's being shipped off. Failed. But he doesn't like her, and there's some conflict between him and his dad that they kind of. Well, the kid says, "I'm not leaving," and the guy's like, "Oh, this is about the girl, isn't it?" Yeah. You know? And then they leave, and and he hereditaries her. I'm about saying. Then, <laughs> then we get to the moment where it becomes clear that Ari Aster saw this movie. <laughs> <laughs> When I saw that, because I remember you mentioned before, I said, I want Jake to see one distinct moment in this. And I'm assuming this was the moment. Uh, yes, that was it. That was where my notes were, Jake! <laughs> and I was watching, and I saw that, and my thought was, oh, man, I know where that movie came from. Uh, spoilers for Hereditary. Uh, there's a similar <laughs> scene in this to something that happens in Hereditary. But she dies, and he's like, well, I'm going to bring her back, despite what I have seen. And then, because this is the weakest security in a military base in the history of military bases and security it's like two cameras one guard (laughs) but at least the the crappy production design kind of backs that up because we saw the first two movies and you look at those and you know for all their problems they got money yeah and then you see the third one and there's the bit where they swipe the card reader and the card reader almost comes off the wall (laughs) because the sticky tack they got on was it was like the third take so it was So it's kind of pervasive, you know, the cheapness of it. So he brings her back, and she's like, oh, I'm back now. Cool. I feel a little weird. And, you know, she doesn't immediately want brains or anything like that, despite... And this is this is the rule thing that bothered yep. me. Because it, she was acting because like she was she, alive and dosed instead of dead, dead and come and back. Dosed, yeah. Right. yeah. And, you know, maybe it's because she was very recently dead or whatever, but Shouldn't, yeah. Yeah, you're right, though. Shouldn't have made a difference. Yeah. And then... You know, she says she's hungry, you know, whatever. The, the movie starts unfolding. They yeah. end up in the convenience store mm-hmm. where she says he's hungry and she starts eating a bunch of, like, ding-dongs or something. Yeah, random snacks. And it's the first time where I had that pang where it really felt like overtly like this guy is a douchebag and this director is trying to say something. Because she keeps saying he's hungry. She starts to eat and he calls her disgusting. Oh. And I don't... And I... And there's there's little nods to the uh, concept of body dysmorphia throughout the whole thing and especially in the way his attitude towards her is increasingly like i love you but i want you to be less gross Hmm. and controlling he just starts to come off as worse and worse and worse yeah you can i haven't thought of that you can make you normally you would think with the i mean this movie is so 90s direct-to-video the instinct might be to be somewhat dismissive of this, but this is Brian Yuzna who did another movie by the name of Society, oh, yeah. um, which is not a fantastic film, but is a film at least that does play with ideas. Yep. Uh, it doesn't necessarily do them well, although I think it does them in unique ways. So it's it's entirely possible that Yuzna was approaching it from, you know, had some semblance of kind of cultural commentary going on. You know, and it, it really felt like that because it, it's recurrent. The stuff that she has where you find out she's a, she uses cutting to ease the pain of yeah. being dead, which mm-hmm. is distinctly, uh, 100%, you know, on purpose. Yes. Like that's, and that, that's, that's, yeah. But it's funny because my note from this is how is this guy going to body shame the woman he killed and brought back to life? <laughs> Swiftly followed by there's no level seven in Street Fighter, which irritated me because the... the, the oh, is that what the horrible stereotypes are playing? Yeah, the horrible yeah. stereotypes are playing Street Fighter and he says, we almost got to level seven. I'm like, 
it's Street Fighter. That, no. And that, and I was somewhat done with the movie at that point. Was he saying level seven or was he saying level essay? Because that dude says essay like every <laughs> sentence. Yeah. It's hard to stereotype. It looks like Powers Booth out of the movie. Too. Yes, so, yes. And if I'd had more time, I wanted to do a running essay counter because that was absolutely good. He was not directing. Just be an awful stereotype and say essay all the time. <laughs> yeah, and then that, that whole scene is weird where, you know, oh, you know, I had the hell with it. We'll rob the store. Oh, she bit me, and, you know, they run off, and then the they, cops come up. They're, they're going every level. Like, they bite, or she bites the shopkeeper, and they... She they, bites one of the gang members as yes. they're leaving, and, and, the, and the gang, and and the, the gang the member shopkeeper is shot in his throat. Right, yeah. and then for some reason, they take the shopkeeper, they, they want to get uh, to the hospital. They go to leave, yeah, they're starting to leave, and the shopkeeper comes up and bangs on the door and says, can you take me to a hospital? And then decides when the police are chasing them, screw this, I'm going to try and escape from the back of the van while it's in motion. Because <laughs> then the shopkeeper them. tries to wave down the cops, who then shoot this man in the head. Yeah, they, yep. they, I have it. it was another note I had. Cops shooting hostages seems mean. <laughs> and then there's another incidence of the zombies stabbing people. Yeah, and then he he calls her disgusting again. Yeah, when and, in, and in, in the tunnels. And yeah. he said specifically, I like you the way you were. Yep. And, and that's, they had already established kind of the, the cutting bit of it specifically at that point. And yep. Like she was already starting a little bit of the cutting. Yeah, like she has a sensational spring at that point. She's I, I don't even yes. think she's, she specifically says that I have a hunger for brains. Just I have this hunger. We keep referring to it as so hunger. hungry. Yeah. And what she does is she starts cutting and, and mutilation to avoid that avoid hunger. the hunger. And he gets increasingly aggressive about it and pushing her around. You know, and then the, the gang comes back and cha well, I, theoretically they're a gang, whatever, the, the stereotypes come back and are chasing them and then they start running in, in not the sewer, what are those? The Aqueduct. aqueducts. <laughs> and they run into the river man. <laughs> Which crazy homeless gay. Crazy homeless magical dude who shows up yep gives us this whole little soliloquy about bodies in a river and then says come with me like what is going on yeah it's this very movie, surreal this movie does a wonderful job with people of color on just all levels <laughs> yeah. it's also nuanced. you know and then they they follow this guy into his home and then the gang comes in but this guy is very clearly the magical stereotype yes Magical yep. person of color stereotype, and it's awful, but it doesn't make any sense. No play with the magical Mardi Gras coin, too. Yeah, yep. he gives yep. him a coin. I... You give this to someone else who's in need. Yep. But he eventually gives it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's in need at that point. <laughs> and I have these notes on it. It's, you know, you can call me the river man. What? You know, it's just so, so much of this movie, you just eventually, it's one, you kind of give into it a little bit. Like, <laughs> Everything that keeps happening makes less and less sense. Oh, yeah. And your brain, you know, for the first couple of things, well, what do they, why do, and eventually it's just like, what's next? All right. Oh, she's completely spiked up. Sure. Why not? Yeah. And then we hit the zenith of that, which is a bit where we get into the box art of the movie, where so yep. Melinda Clark's character takes the self-harm, the cutting aspect of it to an extreme and pushes nails through all of her fingers, pushes glass into her face. A, like a, a dagger, like straight through her palm and out, out of the front. Yep, yeah. ties a goddamn stone to one hand. Yep. And she straight, she goes full of penance. Yep. yep, and at this point, yeah, you can make one of two arguments. You can make the argument of, again, is Yuzna trying to be topical with cutting of the time? Is this a deliberate attempt to say that the first movie was very punk, now we're 1993, so we need to update it to a more contemporary aesthetic. And that'd be nice, but I think it's equally as likely that it's just Brian Yuzna saying, hey, this looks awesome. Exactly. 
Yeah, that's that's where I ended up being. It's like you can actually read some of this stuff into this and some actual commentary in it. You know, this was while it was the age of, you know, a lot of things. You know, I, I forget, it was 93? 93. 93. So we weren't quite at Lilith Fair, but certainly this stuff was in the air at the time. And yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't want to read too much into it, but there was definitely stuff you could read into it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting. And, you know, certainly, again, the recurring verbal abuse from the boyfriend towards her as she increasingly becomes more mutilated and less human and all this. There's enough that I think he was trying to make some sort of point. Whether he did or not, I I don't think so, but it's there. And it's it's enough that I think it's on purpose, at least to some degree. I'm, again, maybe trying to fit a square peg into a round hole here, but because it's so recurring, it makes me think that there's more to it than just, I think this is cool looking. I think the only way for us to settle this is clearly episode two needs to be us watching Brian Yosemite's Faust, Love of the Damned, <laughs> <laughs> and re-watching Society. It's, it's episode two, Yosemite Fest. Tune in in a, in a month. You know, and then it, it descends, they go back to the base, and not... Uh, well, before that, our horrible stereotypes show up again. Oh, right, right, uh, right, right. And right. confront them. And we, again, we have the Powers Booth character from Tombstone, who you have to admire his gumption because he he starts coming on to Melinda Clark's character, who has just come out in her fully bedecked uh, zombie attire. You know, again, she's nails through every finger. She's just absolutely covered in glass. A, a large rock is dangling from one hand, and this guy just starts making sexual advances on her. He just looks her up and down and thinks to himself, this will end well for my dick. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they go into the, he finally coaches her, and they go into the other room, and he immediately starts screaming. Yep. And everybody in the other room is going, of course, what did he expect? <laughs> you know, and then she, co- I, I figure exactly how it works. She comes out, and they flee again. Everybody's dead. The Riverman dies or follows him to the military base he is he's injured and then she i forget how he's injured but but she eats him yes a little bit in that sequence and then he's rounded up by the military she can't control herself yeah that's right he's there incapacitated and dead so she just yeah partakes that's right that's how it goes so then they you know everything calms down the threat is contained and you end up back in the military base with his dad no longer in charge the woman's in charge and they have her in a cage, and the river man is in an exosuit. He is getting put in the exosuit so he can be controlled. Yes. Right. Then like we that, continue our super sensitive portrayal of people of color by putting a person of color in a walking metal cage. Yep. Yeah. And they, the kid comes back in, he sees her, and he decides he's going to free her because they're going to turn her into a killing machine. I still love you. I don't care what you are. Yeah. You're not an animal. Obviously, he lets them all free. He gives the, the guy back the coin. Uh, it's... And then it ends. Mm. And then it ends in the most, oh, I can't come with you, father. I've been bit, and these are my people. <laughs> and then he walks with her into the giant furnace room? <laughs> my, my note on the end is, like you do. ah, the old, I'm going to directly cause the death of a bunch of people to save my dead girlfriend and then commit suicide ending. <laughs> Otherwise known as the cabin in the woods. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, not the strongest entry in the catalog. No, it, it's not. I would put this one, it's better than I kind of expected. Going. So I very much expected kind of stock, sloppy, direct-to-videos, icky 90s horror. Although for all that I call this a direct-to-video horror film, 
I was amused to find out it was actually supposed to get a theatrical release. Huh. It did get a limited theatrical release, but it was supposed to get a wide one, but it was pulled after the failure of Warlock the Armageddon. Didn't make as much money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which amuses me, because I really hope at some point Julian Sands got an angry phone call from Brian Yosna. You're screwing me, Julian! You're really <laughs> screwing me! <laughs> but for for all that I, I, I don't have a nostalgia for the 90s horror, the the gory bits, the, the makeup is, is good for the budget. It's you know, when Melinda Clark shows up in her outfit, I, you know, all I wrote in my notes is, yeah, Yuzna's been here, all right. Yeah. But, but that stuff does look, for what it is, it, it does look legitimately good. But the main thing I think that helps the film is the two lead actors, particularly Melinda Clark. I think Melinda Clark is legitimately good in this movie, particularly yes. for the level of material yeah. she's dealing with. And, and the kid is the death scene. Uh, other than which one? The, her death scene. The first death scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's just awkward. such a goofy-looking scene. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna hug this telephone pole. Yeah. <laughs> but no, and, and even the kid, for much as the lead male character is dislikable, I thought the kid did a better than serviceable job for these films. I um, mean, he's got hair that screams '90s hair. Yeah, like I, each of these movies is distinctly of their era, and I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, m- most movies are whatever, but there's no timeless quality to any of these films. Yeah, no, but you yeah, could watch these films. You know, studying an anthropology course and know immediately where they were the second you see them. Mm-hmm. But what I liked about this one is it tried to be something. It tried to do something interesting or it tried to not be quite the most typical zombie movie of all time. It had the Return of the Living Dead moniker and it really didn't need it other than the only only connection is the gas. Yeah, although it's funny, and this one was made as a Return of the Living Dead sequel. I think it was the genesis of it started kind of as something else, and then they kind of turned it into it. But the writer of this one is a guy named John Penny, who was actually the assistant editor on the original. So it was written by someone who absolutely had a knowledge of the franchise, and and Yuzna mentions in interviews that he was a fan. Obviously, he knew about, had seen the first and second one. So it was absolutely made by people who had an affinity for the origins of the franchise. If the first one is the classic first album, the second one is the classic troubled second album. The second one is Chinese democracy. (laughs) The the third one is when when they try to become a jazz band. (laughs) <laughs> you know, this is our jazz or our reggae album. You know, it's it's trying to do something a little different while maintaining your roots and trying to. I mean, again, I'm probably giving it too much credit for wanting to say something, but when you compare it to the second one, which had nothing to say and no interest in anything other than let's just all get through this, this one tried to be something. Yeah, and in terms of not being ambivalent, like I mentioned, uh, the third one. You can feel Yosna's passion for the material coming through this. It can get kind of icky depending on how you perceive the design of Melinda Clark's character and that potentially being very problematic. However, again, one thing the third film is not is Yosna's obviously having a good time and he obviously cares to a degree about it. Yosna always has a good time. Which, if, if there's red paint being thrown around on set, <laughs> if, then if it's, if it's squishy and wet, then yeah, Yosna's having a good time. Which brings us to the fourth and fifth. The- the fourth is the worst. I would say the fifth, but Ooh. for similar reasons to the second. But the fourth one came out quite a bit later. It was 2006. Yeah, so we jumped from 1993 to 2005. So I guess for what we were just talking about in albums, I guess these films would probably be the Chinese democracy. Of the <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. It's been since 1993, but it's coming, and then it hits, and oh, dear God. Looking at the timeline alone, it just feels to me like, you know, using a kill the franchise, and four and five are the carrion eaters, just like getting the last scraps off its corpse. Well, yeah, you know, you watch the fourth one, and 
First of all, I was amused that it started in Chernobyl. <laughs> because that's already a dated reference when this movie came out. Yeah, yeah. It's more prominent now because of the HBO series than it was when this movie came out. Very true. Second horror movie I've seen taking place in at least partially in Chernobyl because uh, of Chernobyl Diaries, which I'll probably make you watch as revenge for, for this. Fair. Um, I'm ready. <laughs> but yeah, so this one starts in Chernobyl with, I guess, Russian gangsters trying to get Trioxin. Trioxin 5 now. Instead yeah. of they, five right right off the bat, they, they established some things up front, is that apparently zombie outbreaks became a common thing. Oh, that's right. The voiceover <laughs> yeah. from the company yeah, at the there beginning. Was, there, there was Hypertech. Two, yeah, it was like zombie outbreaks. This happens. We we found uh, Trioxin 245, and now this happened here, this happened there. But you know what? We're here to save you and take, take care of you. Because of our hard work, there's been a zombie outbreak in 10 years. And we make your favorite snack food. And so what they established shortly after that is, is that the U.S. government made a huge push to purge trioxin. And they got rid of all of it. And the, and the Russians got rid of all of it. But after the purge of the trioxin, the Russians did find five extra barrels they had missed. But at that point, they were like, eh, we'll keep them. How the Russians got it? And somehow they got stored in Chernobyl, just out of sight, out of mind. Um, I, I have a note on this. Odds this is better than the Chernobyl Diaries. 10%. <laughs> oh, my first note on this goes back to the hybrid. So the movie opens with a hybrid montage, like Nick mentioned. I'm here at Hybertech, blah, 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 blah. And my first thought was, oh, shit, somebody saw a Paul Verhoeven movie. <laughs> They're trying to do RoboCop. Help us. <laughs> my, my first note is, wait, they helped with Chernobyl and zombie outbreaks? Followed by, oh my god, the credits look like a Knight Rider episode. <laughs> <laughs> they do, it is the Knight Rider font. And right off the bat, this movie, I feel, hardcore breaks the rules. Like, I, I was about ten minutes in this film and already angry at it. For starters, I thought it was very clear that if you come in contact with the gas or the, the chemical in some fashion while alive, you go through a process of degradation, then you're yourself, but technically dead, and then you have your turn. Um, in this to one, be fair, some of them do. <laughs> in this one, the one criminal touches the container, gets some chemical in his hand, and like 30 seconds later is like, brains! Yep. Which they then break the next big rule where they give him a, a shot, to, like, just a bullet to the head, and he goes down. Yeah, That's it. Yep. We're now 100% dependent upon the spinal system, the nervous system, from animating the dead. No more just hands and feet, of course, coming after you. Not true, though. Which is not true, because then later <laughs> in the same goddamn film, they have a situation where he's animated an arm, and it's trying to come after him. Yeah, so they're in, they break the original rules, and then they're inconsistent in the breaking of those rules. Well, they're inconsistent with everything, because these are Awful. terrible, terrible, terrible movies. movies. Yeah. There is nothing to recommend these. Well, actually, that's not true. There was one thing I found amusing in these. And I'm talking about, well, I liked all the boobs in the fifth one, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's apropos of nothing else. But there's a scene, so all this stuff happens, and then it cuts to presumably the U.S. It's not. It's Romania, mm -hmm. but everybody's supposed to be American, despite wearing knockoff brand clothing, whatever team or ethnic team is, and all the <laughs> echo stuff, where they're sitting at breakfast, and it's this kid and his younger brother and their uncle, because their parents are dead. Yeah, they establish early on in the film that the parents die in a car accident. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say, Nick skipped forward a little bit. The zombie he just outlined is technically the second zombie we see in the movie. The first zombie is Peter Coyote. Yes, <laughs> he may technically be alive. He may be alive, but his soul ain't. No, <laughs> no. 
in his career ain't at this point in 2005. It's, it's ridiculous how shallow his character is. He is just 100% bad guy from start to finish. There is nothing redeeming about his character whatsoever. He's but, even an asshole as an uncle. Yeah, He's an awful uncle. So they're, they're sitting around breakfast, and the kid is eating corn flop. <laughs> did you, did you really? I guess that. So it's if you look at the cereal box, and I paused this because I wanted to make sure. I was, <laughs> it says corn flop. And oh I noticed that God. in the corner, I'm like, because you start to look at details when you're when you're watching these movies for a podcast, and also because your brain is rebelling against paying attention to the, <laughs> the dialogue. <laughs> and I corn flaw, and I go, what the hell is corn flaw? So I paused it, rewound it, paused it, and then looked at it, and it's cornflakes with the K E S read it out with magic marker. <laughs> oh my God. And you can wow. see where they did it. Like, if you look closely at this, and again, I don't know why my life has come to this, but I did. <laughs> and it's it's very clearly magic markered out so that their breakfast cereal is corn flaw. So that's the pain. Right and if I remember, they complain wow. about the breakfast cereal in this. <laughs> Eat your corn flaw. Probably made by the company. But he is 100% the worst Uncle of the Year award winner. I mean, he's. He he cares. He's clearly like housing them in his house out of a legal obligation alone. He does not give it one iota about these people. Yeah, which is odd when you find out what he's done with their parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then it establishes that you know these kids are one of them is a pyromaniac because why the hell not? One's a hacker, and you know this one the main <laughs> the main character. I'm using air quotes because who. You know, is a somewhat troubled teen, and he goes to school, and they're in a biker gang, but it's dirt bikes, but he's a coward, and none of it makes sense. I was trying to, to follow what they were saying, but the, the implication was that this kid is scared of everything or something, but then that never really comes into play. Yeah, he's terrified to make a jump off a ramp, and then the next person who does it is immediately concussed and carted <laughs> off to the hospital. <laughs> which is which is what so if anything, our main character is wise beyond his years. <laughs> yeah, so the other character, his buddy, who's a raging douchebag, Zeke, Zeke, who is supposedly the cool California kid, despite the heavy Romanian accent, <laughs> gets hurt, goes to the hospital. They try to track him down at the hospital later, and he's gone. And then they realize that he has been taken to the chemical company. And they know this because one of these teenage high school people works late night security she, she has, there. Yeah, she has a late night security internship. Yeah. What the hell is that? With a guy <laughs> who, who just spends the whole time hitting on her. It's ridiculous. It's just so, like, it feels more like a Nickelodeon movie than a horror movie. 100%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then they decide, this biker hacker gang decides they're going to go break their buddy out and... It, okay, this it was real hard I, following the plot. This is okay. So the way the rest of this movie plays out is with their infiltration of this corporation building, finding out the main plot's going on. But beat for beat, it feels much more like a military insurgent film than a bunch of high schoolers breaking in to, to find their friend. I mean, they end up with weapons. They're firing them without remorse. They're like, yeah, got him. I mean, it's 100% like it felt like after the fact, I went, wait, I got an idea. Let's make them high schoolers. And they're like, sure, why not? And did very little to the script to fix it. Yeah, go with it. Yeah. One bit before we get to the infiltration bit. So before they infiltrate the hypertech sequence, it's prefaced by a montage of them getting the materials together mm -hmm. and then going off and riding their bikes to its hypertech. We talked a bit about soundtracks for the Return of the Living Dead films earlier. The soundtrack to this particular segment is I Stand Alone. <laughs> Set to a montage <laughs> of people doing things 
as a group, <laughs> as they are all group to an activity that they are doing as a group. To save a member of their group. No, Mr. Godsmack, you are mistaken, sir. <laughs> this is... Yeah, they, they tried to link it back to the previous movies by having kind of a punky soundtrack, but they missed completely because it was all more metally stuff. And it was closer to, to number three, which had Life, Sex, Death. Who did have one good song, not in the movie, but just in general, which was I'm a Tank, and I really wish it was in the movie, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's a terrible soundtrack. I, I looked up as much of it as I could, and you know, I'm sure most of it would have been available as a license for this podcast for $15 on those free sites, but yeah. Just... I kind of wonder if the I Stand Alone was in there just because the Sci-Fi Channel had, like, didn't they use that as, you know, the soundtrack to, like, all the commercials <laughs> they had on the Sci-Fi Channel, like, around this time? Even the stuff where it was like the classy stuff, it was like, this Sunday, we're proud to present Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris. Ah! Stand alone! What piece of garbage it was, it was always either, ah, stand alone! Or it was the drowning pool thing. It was like a 2005, <laughs> but it was on the sci-fi channel. Yeah. I. And then they get you get to the, you know, where they go into this high security compound and none of it makes, like they use the one girl to lure the other security guard away by offering him sex. Mm-hmm. You're like, here, yeah, why don't you come with me? Who are you? Who cares? Let's and like, go. And she, she literally has almost no personality or reason to be in the film, except she's the one who's going to randomly sleep with the stranger guard. That's it. That's yep. all she does. It's so Hector. awful. Hector, who has the classy lines of dialogue, Christmas is cool and nice pooper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's the karate script, uh, the script we're dealing with here, which I should mention so the writers of both this one and the next one are William Butler and Aaron Strongoni, who are known for the Ginger Dead Man franchise. Uh, and the director of this is Ellery LKM, who actually did Eight-Legged Freaks, which I have not seen, but I always heard decent things about. Same. Not I've seen it. Return of the Living Dead Necropolis level thing? No. It was better than this. Uh, yeah, I would think. And then it just descends from there, and it just doesn't make any... They keep in, like They break into this facility, and then there's... You know, oh, nobody's been down in this basement for years, yet there's security and, you know, cages and, you know, this is where they store the zombies. And they, Who they, they clearly had to have just made off the barrel they just got. But then there's yeah, baby the, zombie the aliens. Security area. Yeah. yeah. Baby zombie aliens and tanks. Oh, yeah. They never they... really explain that, do well, they? That's such a random, they, they literally just had like the props were like, throw it in, throw it in. You know, and then stuff happens. There's zombies. There's the there's the line. You know, send more security guards once the zombies start breaking out. Yeah, I like nod back. That's nice. Which I just wrote. You know, I have in quotes. Send more security guards, and then lol, nah, dog. Uh, I have send more security guards. <laughs> Fuck you, movie. <laughs> so we're on the same wavelength with that one, and it just keeps descending into this stuff. Like I feel like we should talk more about it, but I don't want to. Because I hated every moment of it. Uh, it was just it's, awful. It's painful. I, I did enjoy Peter Coyote in this, just seeing him on screen and the faces he was making. I know, in truth, what it is, is that Peter Coyote didn't give a shit and knew what he was making. And was just, I'm just going to say the line. I have this goofy smile on my face. Just say the line and get me off of here. But he had that look in his eye like he was severely concussed. Like, he looked like a football player who just took a really bad hit. And he spends the whole movie, like, trying to convince his coach, I'm okay, but it, it, the, the eyes, like, are just glassy. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure they said, you know, we got this contract for a movie for you, Mr. Coyote. And he's bent down to look at, you know, what the name of the movie was, and they just hit him with a giant mallet. And the next thing he knew, he woke up on set, and he was in a lab coat. <laughs> and action! That was the next thing that, about this film that really upset me was with the rule breaking. Was that once the zombies start showing up in mass, 
they're able to take them down with, if you have a fair number of shots to the chest, they go down. One uh, shot to the chest. So say, I'm like, wait, what? These Are they just alive now? <laughs> you know, yep, <laughs> yeah. Now you get, like, you get a couple shots to the chest and internal organ failure is all it takes. There's no rules. No set, yeah, they had zero rules. It was whatever they wanted to do in the moment. And they just chat all over it. Well, you you can tell by the sequence where the main character and his hacker friend are about to leave. And he's like, no, I have to go back in to find out what happened to my parents. Even though his little brother is out there in jeopardy. So they go back and in. And doesn't make it. And do, yeah, doesn't make it. So they go in, fist fight some zombies, go up to the roof, get chased up to the roof by zombies to the, the upstairs. They find his parents who are now borgified. Yep. With, like, Gatling guns and buzz saws on their hands, even though they just got this gas last week, these are now zombies. To be fair, it felt like they were prepping these their corpses to be used with this gas. Yeah, they mentioned, right. their, yeah, it's military use or something. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, they're like, wow, this is great. If only we had this gas destroyed by everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> so they, they see this and his parents and they, they really do look like bored but with gatling gun hands when they first showed up I wrote in my notes I said oh my god we wandered into the live action Doom movie with Carl Urban and The Rock and I never thought I'd say this but please don't leave me live action Doom movie <laughs> I'd much rather stay in you than return to the dead necropolis but take me with you Doom movie so then they, they, get, they get broken into and they have to run out of this room and they're like you know, oh no, where are we going to go? Well, let's run down. So they start to run down, and zombies are coming up. They're like, where do we go? The roof. They go up to the roof. Next scene, them repelling down off the roof. Yep. Because they're military, they're a military outfit. Everything about this infiltration is they got the guns, they know how to use them, they can repel. It's they are a military outfit. Oh, wait, let's make them kids. But where did they get the repelling gear? It's just, oh, it shits on the roof. We'll repel down. And then. It sets up a final battle, not with the Borg alien. No, that gets knocked out quick. Yeah, they show up like, and then they get hit by a truck, and the other one gets plugged in and deep fries herself. And the final battle is with his friend. Yep. Who has been a zombie. And then set on fire, and then comes back, and it's just him, but with burns. Yep. And then they have a fist fight. This is like the least (laughs) successful like zombie rescue movie I've ever seen. It's like, we're going to save this guy. Well, he's going to die, and almost all of us will, too. It's like usually with, with the, at least the, the rescue attempts, you have a, a better return on your on your ending. There's no return on this. But they set it up like the ending plays out like there was some conflict between these two, and there wasn't. No. They spend this whole movie trying to save this dude because yes. he was his best friend. Now it's like, well, I'm going to teach you how to fight. What is going on? And then, don't get me wrong, he was a douchebag, but he was not a, a, a the enemy douchebag. Yeah. You know, and then the SWAT shows up. It's not even the army. It's SWAT who has tanks and just runs over the zombies and saves a couple of them. And, oh, God. I, my, my, my last note for this one was, this was so bad, I'm mad it used the franchise name when I didn't like any of the other movies either. <laughs> <laughs> like, this was one of those movies that changed the past because I, I yep. watched... Two, three, and four in the same day. Yep. And after four, it made me like three and two more. Yeah. Just because they yeah. weren't as bad as this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can see that. <laughs> I, I have two more notes on four, one of which I thought was interesting, which was um, there's the character that's played by Jana Kramer, who plays the character of Katie, who's the character who has the internship at, internship mm-hmm. at Hybertech. And she is the character who, after the dust is settled, they find out that she caught a stray round and dies in, in, in the street right as the main characters are about to be taken away by the police. Uh, she was supposed to come back in the fifth one. 
So the fifth one, which we're about to get into, the character that's played by the blonde actress, who I, unfortunately I don't have her name in front of me, that was supposed to be the same character. Okay. She was written out because apparently she suffered a serious gallbladder infection oh my God. and couldn't come back. So they just wrote her out by having her catch a stray round to the gut. So that's where that random bit comes So from. she was the lucky one. Yes. But let's address that since we're rolling into five real quick here. So apparently, you are, at least I was initially led to believe that five is a direct continuation of four because the people who survived four are in five. Yep. Same crew. Same same, yep. same crew and yep. I. But things get so drastically different, it becomes impossible to be a sequel. First off, the hacker going to school, going to college, is he going to be a hacker? Is now a chemist. They're also yep. in college and not and, high school. And everyone who is a lot who you could call the survivors of the fourth one have zero knowledge of zombie effects from the fourth one. I mean, it's like, it's like they never went there. It never happened. Yeah. It's, it's an entirely different movie, but it starts out making you think it's going to be a sequel. Cause it starts out with what's his face. Peter Coyote, Peter Coyote selling. Well, yeah, Cause the fourth one ends with him escaping in a truck with like a, a barrel or two. Yeah. And then the fifth one starts with him selling said barrel to Interpol. Right. Yeah. yeah. Selling a barrel to Interpol. And this is where we get the fun moment where, Peter Coyote didn't realize the camera was on because there's a sequence <laughs> where he yells at the Interpol leader, just give me my money and we can get out of here. And Peter, Peter, we're rolling. This is, that, that's, that's not the line. That's that's my first note for this. Just give me my money and we can get out of here. And that no no other movie have I seen where one of the very first lines and it sums up the entire film. There is not... Give me my money and yep. we can get out of here. Look, I have often lamented that there's less nudity in horror movies now than there used to be in the 80s. This one gives plenty of nudity, and I would still say there is no redeeming quality no. to this film, except one scene later on with the Tar Man where he goes, brains! <laughs> <laughs> and, and to make it clear which one we're talking about in terms of titles, which also ends up being, kind of being emblematic of tone, so the movie we're talking about now is the fifth one, which is titled Return of the Living Dead, Rave to the Grave, whereas the previous one was Return of the Living Dead, Necropolis, and yep. you're in Necropolis, and it's, oh, is it going to be dark and serious and edgy, and this one is Rave to the Grave, and it's kind of emblematic of the kind of the different tonal approaches they took and failed miserably at both of them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the main thing for for these two movies is that they fail at everything they try. Like literally, the fifth one feels like in the first half hour they're like, "This is a sequel," and they got halfway through and went, "Wait, this isn't really going to work. Screw it, it's a new movie." But they never went back and fixed the first half hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Cody, the hacker in the first one, is now a party chemist. Yeah, and it, just none of it. Like, like it's it's there's elements to it like you said like the the kid has no family left his you know he lost his parents his uncle was all he had and his uncle dies early on yeah and the fifth one he dies real early yeah. and the kid is sad that he's dead and that's the point where like wait a minute he can't possibly be sad his uncle is dead his uncle tried to kill him and all his friends like it just never none of it in this movie ever even tries to make sense nope you know the two guys who were dressed up like pulp fiction extras. You know, even stand there shooting at things, holding their guns like Pulp Fiction. It's yeah. very obvious homage that, that they may be the most amusing part of the film. <laughs> but then again, considering how dog shit the film is, it's not saying much. I think the only amusing part of the film for me is is the sequence where an innocent civilian catches a stray round, which is uh, <laughs> you know during the titular rave to the grave sequence at the end. There's one character who's trying to get a line of sight on a zombie in the midst of a bunch of civilians. So he fires a few rounds into the air to get everyone to clear out. But apparently there was one guy who was on the sidelines who said, I got to run to the front and see what that gunshot was. <laughs> Runs in directly in and takes the bullet for this zombie inadvertently. That part was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. You know, we watched this movie right before we started recording. Yep. And the idea was we would have 
a lot to say about it, and I just don't have that much it to say about it. It has nothing so to bad. it. It's, it's one of the worst, and again, air quotes here, horror movies I've ever seen. They, none of it makes sense. They don't even try to make sense. They try to, there's no logical anything to anything that happens in this. They, it's, you know, we're going to make a horror movie that's a horror comedy, and then just every every choice they make is just, it, it feels like it's, it was done on the spot. The dialogue feels like they just told it, you know, the cameras are on, say some shit. And it's just, I, I can't, I, like, I literally, one of my notes is, I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> And that was after they have this fakest looking party I have ever seen. And then they decide to go off to, to help this other kid. And the DJ from the party comes with them. Why? Who knows? Yeah, it's worth mentioning. Like, one of the premises of this is they get a, a canister of this stuff. They find it in the house after the uncle has died. And they're like, well, what is it? Clearly not remotely thinking my uncle who caused this tragedy in the fourth movie has this chemical, this chemical container. Maybe it's connected. Nope, never comes up. Not connected whatsoever. They bring it to the chemist friend who takes a look at it and goes, hey, this remotely looks like drugs. And then, so why don't we try it? And, and that's the whole thing. They, they turn trioxin into ecstasy. Z, they call it. Z. Because it makes you look like a zombie. <laughs> and it makes you do a special. When you take Z, you end up having the same special effect done to you from the Super Mario film when they turn people into Goombas. Which is just you rattling in place going, <laughs> that looks like a good time. You know, none, none of whatever happens in this is consistent. One guy takes the drug, immediate zombie. You know, this guy, another guy is taking it the whole film. He doesn't change until later. And, you know, they keep trying to, at one point they try to explain the chemicals in it. And it, it's just a guy reading a chart. You know, these are chemical words. And let's be clear here. This is the same type of canister from the very first film. You know, it's very consistent canister where it has a damn corpse in it. With a window on top. Yet supposedly, no matter how many times they look through the top of the thing, they can't see anything. <laughs> yeah, so one of two positives I have for this one is, yep, like you mentioned, this one has the return of the Tar Man from the first two. It's a, it's a better design than the second yeah. one. I think they, they, the design of the Tar Man in this is not bad. No, it's nice. Particularly it's compared to every, everyone else's it's, zombie makeup in this is basically just gray paint put on and, and squibs on the back of their heads. It's clearly where they put the majority of their budget into. They're like, we gotta hit this right, if nothing else. Yeah, and, they and then they didn't do anything with them. Um, nothing. Well, to that one bit. Yeah, a joke about, he, at one point the tarman is on the side of the road with a sign that says rave or bust. Which is so out of place it's ridiculous yeah, which is it's a stupid joke even by this movie standards yes. when they show it the first time initially it's a cutaway shortly after his first appearance but then they it's the ending of the film as they circle back to this and they leave the shot on him with this sign and eventually he drops the sign and walks off and it's longer than the end credits of the incredible hulk tv show <laughs> and in fact putting that piano theme on it is probably the only thing that would make it salvageable <laughs> but the upside of the appearance of that character is it is played by alan troutman the same guy who played the tar man in the first two so it's got that going for love it. I, I when he appeared i was just genuinely hoping because there's a rat in this called mr stinky that oh. repeatedly gets referenced <laughs> and then they never do anything with like all I, he does is that he, he has the one moment where he bites the the uh, the other scientist that's it. The vegetarian. But, but, yeah. but then he gets away, and they never come back to it. He's gone. They never address what happened to Mr. Stinky. It, he's a yeah. random element in the world, but you know, whatever. It's like the stoners being clearly 45, 46-year-old dudes. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah, Tarman's one of positive, and then the other positive I have, which actually bleeds over into the fourth one a bit, which is, as Jake mentioned, this movie was shot in Romania. Like, 90% of the supporting cast are all Romanian actors. 
some folks, they, they've left their original onset audio in, but for most of the cast, they're dubbed over after the fact. They're dubbed over in post. And so there's a lot of scenes with supporting characters. There's particularly one scene in the fourth one, which is two homeless people who are having a conversation with each other. And the dubbing is just so off from you know the actual lip movements that for just a few brief minutes, you can pretend you're watching an Argento movie. <laughs> you know, I, can, I can just pretend it's the 80s. It's I'm watching Dario Argento and, and just pretend that Dario's having a really bad day. But it's still Argento, damn it. It's funny, your happy place is Argento. It's just that, that, That's all I got! It's Return of the Living Dead Necropolis! Let me have my fantasy! Yeah. And in the end, I just the last two movies are barely... There's sub-sci-fi original quality. Yeah, and cash grabs. And they, they were shot back-to-back in Romania, and I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe they premiered the same night on the Sci-Fi mm-hmm. Channel. It was a back-to-back showing. Which makes me think it was one of the worst nights for Sci-Fi Channel ever. One one other note I had from those is what I kept noticing is I, I have a thing where I look at license plates and it amuses me in movies because a lot of times it can fix to where the movies are taking place and a lot of times they don't care. And this was one of the movies where they don't care because every license was from a different state. <laughs> you know, there was New York, there was California, there was Washington. And it just it's one of those things. It's it's no attention to detail, no work on the script, no real acting. No care about the previous movies. Just awful. It's like, let's use this name, let's use this gas name, and it'll be like that. And it's just, they're not worth watching. They're like, if we get 90 minutes of film in a can, we've completed their job. That's really their only goal. And knowing that this aired on on Sci-Fi Channel, even the best thing about the fifth one wouldn't have even been in it. No. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. But that's a franchise. And I guess it's not unlike a lot of franchises where it starts out strong and then just gets worse and worse and worse. It's significant. Like the difference from the first one being, in my opinion, a true classic of the 80s, a staple of horror and, and zombies specifically, to what it ends with is just the bridge between them is unfathomable. Yeah. And I would just, in the end, I would say the first one's worth watching, the third one's worth watching, and ignore the rest of it. I'd say the second one has some merit if you're willing to uh, deal with it, but no one under any circumstances should watch I mean, you see the fifth one. You see a Dazzler comic in the second one. I guess that's cool. <laughs> so related to that golf and in quality that Nick just mentioned. So I did have two questions. So one is for Nick specifically. So why Returning to the Living Dead is kind of the, the first one, like something to put it in your mind or that you made you think it'd be particularly engaging for... Well, I just thought it'd be, I was trying to think of movies we should talk about and things that would go over well with the podcast, especially when we do them. And I was trying to think of all these movies I'd seen and I thought of Return of the Dead. And then that's when it hit me about what happened with the fourth and fifth one. I'm like, I haven't seen those, but I know just what this is going to do. And I was like, the dichotomy of the two, I was like, I think that is interesting. I think there's a lot to be said and compared there. It ended up being perfect for the purpose of looking at a franchise you know, mm-hmm. of something with you know a lot of potential and then let it end. So, so that's my first question. My second question is, why do you hate your friends? <laughs> I love my friends. I hate myself. I do this to myself, and I drug you with me, and I'm so sorry. Well, our original idea was, you know, we'll watch the first one and then the fifth one. You know, we'll we'll compare how a franchise starts and how it ends. So of course, Which, that by itself was a neat idea. But then I threw the anchor around all your necks when I said, "Well, yeah. I have to watch the second one again because I remember enjoying it. I want to see what that's like." And the third one was one I hadn't seen yet. And oh wait, the fourth one is a, technically a sequel to the fifth one. I guess I'm watching all of these. 
And mm-hmm. that was, you were ready to let me just drown on my own. You're, you're un- going to pay. Until Eric was like, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. And you were like, I can't be the only one who hasn't watched all these. Right. And, you know, I've been yeah. laid up with some <laughs> medical stuff, so I had time to watch movies. And I'm sure this Because set, you weren't suffering enough. And this, this set my healing back a week. Well, you know, I care. Yeah. My, my doctor's mad at you, Nick. So, yeah. So, that's Return of the Living Dead. Uh, I would say it's not as strong as Night of the Living Dead franchise. Agreed. But there's definite merit to watching at least two of these and not any of the rest. You liked two more than me. Eric, how would you order them? Uh, I uh, First by a country mile. I, I watched the first one to varying degrees. I watched the first one probably, I told Nick early before we started recording, I watched the first one probably about six or seven times. Uh, a couple of those times were commentaries. One of it was just reading along with the screenplay, but it's every time I watched it, it actually never got old. It's actually one of those films that like when I watched yep. it today before coming in, it was like, I am just enjoying watching. It's always it. fun. So it's I, my esteem of the first one has actually gone up in the process of making the list. So I would have probably given it like an eight out of 10 or something initially, but I might actually inch up to a nine now. It's, I would it's say just, nine. It's just, it's nine easy. how well it clicks and just how rewatchable it is after that. Oh, that's a cliff. Um, I would, for me, the third one edges out the second one slightly, and it's mainly because of those two lead performances, mainly from Melinda Clark. And if you're a production design person, the second and the third ones are kind of comparable in that respect. Um, the, the second one's obviously got a lot more money. Yes. But the, but the second one, the makeup effects are good You know, for the money they've got. The third one, which has less money, the makeup effects. I mean, it's Yuzna, so it was like, if anything looks good, make sure the squishy bits look good. Yeah, and it does. Yuzna loves um, this creature parade. So yeah, for what it is, I, I have no real attachment to that old, you know, squishy directed video horror. But I thought there's some interesting enough bits in it and a strong enough lead performance by Melinda Clark that I would give it the edge over two. So I would go one, three, two, and then can we not talk about four and five? <laughs> <laughs> I would just throw four and five into the same trash heap. So I would say one, three, a big gulf, two, and then the Challenger Deep, and then four and five. <laughs> yeah, I would do one, two, and three and just pretend the fourth and fifth ones don't exist. All right. So that's Return of the Living Dead, and that's that's it for us. We'll be back in a few weeks with something else. We haven't decided yet, but we're going to punish Nick. We know the movies he hasn't seen and doesn't want to see, so it'll be some franchise like that. Maybe Annabelle. Maybe uh, this is going to be a podcast of me crying. <laughs> maybe if you're still listening, please tune into the second episode because we're done episode one, and we've already hit hate watching with our co with our co host by episode two. Here, episode one, we're going to watch Return of the Living Dead franchise. Oh yeah, well you're going to watch the Annabelle franchise from episode two. Fine by me, episode three, you're going to watch these nuts. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. so that's it for us that um, was my other thought with the nick picking return of the living dead as the uh, our initial podcast was nick wanted to do a meta thing where the first episode of the podcast is the last episode of the podcast <laughs> i am the alpha and the omega <laughs> <laughs> right. so that's it for us uh thanks for listening Check us out on oddityprodigies.com. You can listen to our, our other podcast, Oddity Podigy. And don't forget to like and leave us a comment or a review if you can. We'd really appreciate it. We're going to have some information for Twitter and Facebook and other places you can follow us. And feel free to send us a note. 
drop us a line and maybe We'd love to hear from you. Movies yeah. you're interested in that you'd like to hear us talk about. We'll watch anything clearly. Uh, so again, from I'm Jacob. Thanks for coming out. I'm Nick Leamy. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Eric. And- ah, stand alone. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is Future Eric with the Fancy Audio, just chiming in with some of the details that Jacob was referring to at the end of the episode. We'll be launching episode one at soundcloud.com slash scarystuffpodcast, which is probably where you're listening to us right now. We'll be expanding to other platforms as well. You can follow us on Instagram at instagram.com slash scarystuffpodcast or on Twitter at twitter.com slash scarystuffpod. Going forward, the pod will be released on a monthly schedule, currently slated for release on the third Monday of every month, but we're actually going to be releasing episode two a bit early. Episode two is going to be released in just two weeks. The focus of that episode will be all seven movies in the Paranormal Activity franchise. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.